Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, January 19, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Every winter, we have one of these cold snaps. Some years it's colder than others. Some years it's longer than others. Some years it includes precipitation. Some years it does not. It appears to me, Josh and Rev, that this weekend may be that weekend that we have unseasonable low temperatures. Yeah, I saw this morning um, 16 or 17 in the PD at about 20 or 21 along the coast. You know what that's called in the country? That's called pop-busting weather is what it is. So winterize your home uh, to the best of your abilities. It's odd, but it's not odd. I would say, Rev, that every year at some point during the winter, we have some sub-20 degree temperature, but it's not for an extended period of time. And it probably won't be. I think I saw where it's 73 by Friday, 73 or 74 uh, by Friday. Makes sense. So we start the week 17. We end the week at, at 73. Uh, Welcome to South Carolina. And, and I don't want to go down the road of, um, I mean, they're still debating. I want to wait until Jay, Mike, and Phillip or one, two, or three of those guys get here to try and get an update from the state house on the NIL bill. Somebody walked in here yesterday and said, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I may not be exactly right, but I know what I'm talking about. I can assure you of that. Um, I don't want to go into detail. It'd take too long. I could be a guest on a podcast one of these days about the beginning of NIL at South Carolina. I'll just leave it there. I mean, I'll just, I could be, Rev knows the story. Mm-hmm. I could be a guest on a podcast one of these days could. when we're debating the beginning and origin of NIL at the University <laughs> of South Carolina. Um, and it would be an interest. I think you would find it very interesting and revealing, but so, in the so name, many times I say, "How do you get yourself messed that's up?" That's a good in these question. Things? My wife asked how that in the that, world that Sunday morning. My wife said, "How do you end up here?" <laughs> I don't have any idea. I don't. I mean, it's kind of like I'm. I'm. I went a bit of my life believing that I was all that, and when the things couldn't be handled by anybody else, they came to me. Now I'm old enough to believe. Give it to Mikey. He'll eat it. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Call yeah, Lord. He may yeah. try it. I don't know, man. He may you try may, it. You may have been getting used a little. Or- yeah, he, he, he kind of likes a challenge. I've said this before. If I won $10 million, I'm going to Litchfield. If I won $100 million, I'm going to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird way to look at it. I understand. But if I win a $10 million lottery, I'm going to Litchfield. If I win $100 million, mm, I'm going to be a pain in somebody's butt. Um, $10 million is not enough to reshape. Um, you can still get skin up at there, but a hundred million, you can tell everybody to go to, you know, where Josh and, um, and let them do with it what they choose to do with it. So, yeah, um, I heard a story yesterday that I find interesting. So we'll get an NIL report once, um, once Jay Phillip and Mike get here and Mike's on the record. I mean, Mike's not opposed to it. And he's told me on and off the record, look, I want to help. I just don't know that that needs to be in the front of the line. I don't know that that's more important than, education and infrastructure and taxation and the budget and all these other things that we're largely and mostly uh, responsible for. You hear all these anecdotal stories about this and that and the other. Um, I mean, I read something over the weekend, excuse me, over the, um, the late yesterday afternoon I read, somebody took a, uh, some aviation expert said that um, the airport nearest Taylor Swift's house and the airport nearest the Kansas City Chiefs now, they don't know that she left from that airport. They don't know that she landed at that airport. They know that she flew private every time she went. I mean, there's a log of that. He didn't go into the detail about, well, we. He, he's assuming she left an airport nearest her home 
she landed at an airport near Arrowhead Stadium. If she did, she burned 138 tons of jet fuel. Just going to see um, Kelsey play for the Kansas City Chiefs. And then she lectures in her concerts about climate change and the EVs and the, the evolution of energy in America um, today. So I went, hmm. um, I was in, hmm. well, a bit, you know, but she's got better than a hundred million. Sure. When, when you've got blank you money, <laughs> yeah, you can you do think? and say what you yeah. choose to do. And Why say, do you do that kind of stuff? Because, yeah, you, because can. you can. That's exactly right. So, um, so I got a friend of a friend and I see my friend all the time. I see the friend of the friend occasionally. And yesterday my friend and I were together and his friend and business associate came in and I knew we had a Tesla. I knew we had an electric vehicle. And we were talking about the stories, and I told him, I said, you know those electric vehicles. It's lithium ions flowing through the electrolyte fluid. He said, I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know that. I, I just kind of wanted one. I wanted to be different. I wanted to uh, be cool and, and innovative and, you know, cutting edge. When I pull up at the country club, I want people to say, wow, I mean, he's got that car. You know, he, he's one of these believers in, in climate change. Anyway, um, what, what, the look on his face when I said, hey, dude, batteries don't create energy. They store energy. And the lithium ions inside that battery travel through that uh, that electrolyte liquid to the store side of the battery. That's what happens when you charge it. When you charge a, a, a Tesla, just use that as an example. When you plug the car in, it begins energizing the uh, the lithium ions, and the lithium ions travel from one side of the battery to the other in this electrolyte liquid, and the energy is stored. So when you begin needing the energy, the battery has stored energy. Battery doesn't create any energy. It stores uh, the energy. And he's like, okay, I sold mine. <laughs> I mean, this is after I went through all this um, smart speak about, you know, the car and the charging. and the Because in, in, in the Midwest, when the real cold weather got here at the end of last week, before the playoff game started, there were electric vehicles stuck everywhere. I mean, they were literally stuck everywhere. So anyway, I go into this five-minute dissertation about EVs and the problems people to find it out in cold weather. And it began when I said, hey, man. Uh, and then I said, does your, after making my political speech, I said, hey, does your Tesla charge slower in the cold weather? He said, I got rid of the Tesla. I said, do what? He said, yeah. He said, I, I liked it, but I got a new job. He got reassigned. Same company reassigned, but he said, I got reassigned and have to go to Greensboro once a week. And when I drive to Greensboro, and I get there, I don't have much charge left. And if it's cold, sometimes I have to stop on the way. And if I get there and find a charging station, I've got to wait about 45 to 50 minutes to get enough charge to come back uh, to Florence. And if it's cold, it's over two hours to get enough charge to get all the way back. Now, it takes almost a full charge to get to Greensboro. So basically, um, a, a life event happened. But it's not he got moved to Hong Kong. He's going to spend a week in Asia, a week in America. you got to sit down and talk to your family about that, don't you? But if you get a job offer within a company, a promotion, and it requires you going to Hong Kong once a week, I mean, don't you believe you owe it to your family to say, hey, I got this job offer. It's more money. We live a better life. We might end up having a farm or a, or a beach house. We'll have better tickets at the Gamecock or Tiger game. But I'm going to be in Hong Kong every other week. i got to leave every other Sunday night. And I'll get back every other Friday afternoon. Let's sit down at a family unit and make a decision about what is in all of our best interest. There's more money, but there's a disruption to our normal lives. The electric vehicle forces you to make that sort of decision 
if one day a week you got to drive to Greensboro. Right. And nobody's talking about the nonsense here about the EVs and the evolute the energy evolution that America is a part of. I read in the Wall Street Journal, no friend of America First. And and I guess the America Firsters are the the Neanderthals in the debate, Josh. Um, I want to get your take on this. I'm jumping around, but it's six fifteen on a Friday morning. We've earned the right to jump around. What do you make of this, Josh? Am I reading too much in this? Jamie Dimon is a registered Democrat. We touched on it yesterday. Jamie Dimon is one of the best bankers in America. Jamie Dimon is one of the most respected men in business. He's a Democrat, but he is one of the most respected men in business. We can argue about the corruption of Wall Street. We can argue about the politicization of Wall Street. I mean, I get all that. That's fair enough. But there's no denying that Jamie Dimon, Jamie Dimon's a lot of things he ain't done. Fair enough. I mean, would we? Would the three of us agree to that? Jamie Dimon's a lot of That's things. That's pretty obvious. He ain't mm-hmm. dumb. I'll assure you of that. A very bright and intelligent businessman. Um, now, we can dispute the model. I mean, he's gained favor with Washington. Well, he's smart enough to do that. He understands running a big bank. It's better to be, you know, in bed with government than not in government. But Jamie Dimon was on CNBC from, you ready? From Davos. I call it the Davos man, Maya Coppa. Jamie Dimon is on set with um, Kernan, Ross Sorokin, I think Becky, whatever her name is. I mean, she is one of the um, one of the, the the regular cast of characters on CNBC as they're doing their um, economic no Scooby, their financial pornography that they do every single morning. I mean, it's all ginned up anyway. But anyway, Diamond says because somebody says something about um, the election, and Diamond says, I mean, I'll play it. Diamond says, look, I'm not as bullish as some of you folks are. When the market has a good two or three weeks, a lot of you get giddy. I'm not. I think I understand economic stimulus and the long-term effect. I think I understand probably better than most quantitative tightening. And he stopped and he said, and I'm not sure many others do. That's a bit arrogant, but I trust him. He said, I think I understand what happens to an economy when you begin quantitative tightening. And then he hesitates and said, and I don't think a lot of others do. Uh, and he's really insulting the Fed and the Treasury is what he's doing. You know, those guys are bureaucrats. I mean, we're over here monitoring making a return, you know, trying to make wise investments. And I don't think that they understand. But then he said, um, you know, the election, he's talking about Biden. And he said, Biden's taking the wrong approach on the economy. He's trying to convince people that it's okay, and it ain't. I mean, people know it's not okay. They're they're getting burned at the grocery store, burned at the gas. We talked a lot about this. Six-pack of beer has gone up four times in the last two years. You know, that's Joe Blow. That's Joe's six-pack. You can't have enough eggheads, quoting economic indicators, to convince the working man and woman that life is okay, that life is getting better. But then Diamond said, Josh, and I'm going to get your take on this, because they went down the road of Trump. And he said, I mean, you know, I I don't like the way Trump says things. I mean, I don't like the lack of decorum. I wish he'd go about some things different way. But when you think about it, he was right on NATO. He was right on China. He's absolutely right on immigration. He kind of sort of had the economy heading in a very positive direction. I don't like the tweets. I don't like the bombast. I don't like the way he speaks and, and, and you know, uh, handles himself in some of these forums. But, but, I mean, on the big issues, the guy was right. And he said, the other thing I want to get to the bottom of is why when someone who supports Biden comes on this set and he's looking at his buddies and he says, this set, why don't you ask him or her, hey, why are you supporting Biden? But if a Trump supporter comes on and you know he's a Trump supporter, she's a, a Trump supporter, the first question out of your mouth is, why, why would you support Trump? I mean, he said, that's insulting. 
whether you intend to or not, that's radically insulting to a group of people. And he said, I think the the way we talk about the MAGA crowd, I don't think he said crowd, the way we talk about the MAGA voter only intensifies their commitment to prove to you that you don't have the authority to run this world. Am I, am I, am I reading too much into that, Josh, when Diamond says, why don't y'all ask other people why they support? You know, it's almost like, um, why would you support a Nazi totalitarian communist? I mean, it's, it's that, there's that insinuation. What, what do you make of that, Josh? No, I, I don't think you're reading into it at all. I think that's, com- that's completely accurate to what's going on right now. I think that, there, you know, for years there's been this kind of animosity building up in this, in this divide between the media and the hyper elites and your average uh, person. And that now Trump kind of really illuminated that divide. And, and, you know, I hear a lot about people talking about, well, oh, we have to bridge this gap. We have to get together and whatnot. I think that it's good that this divide has been, uh, you know, in essence revealed because I think we need to not mend, mend things with the other side. We have to beat the other side. That, that's an interesting. See, I agree with that. I mean, I do. I, I don't think this is the time to to try and sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. I mean, it's obvious some of the others are saying, hey. I mean, this is getting too radical, too out of control, too too much animosity, one group with another. Let's try to sit down and resolve this in reasonable fashion. To me, that's when one side knows they're losing. I mean, they've never wanted to sit down and reconcile before. I mean, they've insulted, they've insulted, they've marginalized, they've disparaged, and all of a sudden, they understand, wow, there's more of those than we thought they were, and they're more intensely committed to what they believe in than we ever imagined. And we ain't talking them out of it. So if we're not talking those 75 or 80 million people out of it, let's convince them that we never meant what we said. We were never who they thought we were. Let's sit down. Now, what Jamie Dimon is doing is what the CEO of J.P. Morgan should do. He's hedging. Right. And that's what I was going to say. But you're not offended by that. No, but he sees that Trump may end up being the next president, and he better not be on the bad side. But but the one thing I think— That's smart. But every now and then, I think one of these unbelievably accomplished men or women— will let you let you know what they really believe. And I think I think Diamond gets it. I think Diamond said, no, once again, I don't think Diamond's a Trump supporter. Don't get me wrong. I ain't falling for that. But I think Diamond is, is beginning to say, I don't know, man. I mean, we, we treat those people a little bit different. We talk about them a little bit different. And how long do you disrespect someone and then say, and then say, hey, but can't we solve all these problems if we're willing to work together? No, you're, you're the same guy that said I was you know, a, um, all these nasty things and derogatory things, and I've got no interest in sitting down with you. I'm with Josh. I think this is a critical moment in American history where compromise is not the answer. Moderation is not the answer. There's going to be a winner and a loser. The winner needs to be America first. The loser needs to be the elite establishment. There is no, I mean, that's oil and water. I mean, there is no integrated model where, where the America firster has equal representation on the boards and commissions and the elite establishment have equal representation. No, they ran the joint long enough. Let's beat them. Let's beat them. Take a break. Back in a few. How do you see the U.S. economy playing itself out over the next 12 months? This is an election year. We've yeah. been talking a lot about what just took place in Iowa yeah. and trying to understand how the American public is going to feel about the economy may ultimately uh, dictate how uh, the president is decided. Yes, I agree with that. I, I 
think it's a mistake to assume that everything's hunky-dory. And, you know, and when stock markets are up, it's kind of like this little drug we all feel. Like, it's just great. You know? But remember, we've had so much fiscal and monetary stimulation. So I'm a little more on the cautious side that we are facing a lot of things in, 20, in 24 or 25. And you, you mentioned Ukraine, the terrorist activity in Israel, the Red Sea, quantitative tightening, which I still question if we understand exactly how that works. I don't think we do. How QE actually worked, what the effect of negative, you know, zero rates was for all this time. Uh, and obviously the politics. And, you know, and then the Ukrainian war is affecting oil, gas, food, migration. So you have all these very powerful forces that are going to be affecting us in 24 and 25. So if I was the government, I would be preparing for what I'm going to do about that, assuming things aren't good. And I just also want to point out, and I, I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA, you know, and you, if you travel this country, you know, and the country's unbelievable. We took our bus trip this year, and Leslie Picker was on Spokane and Boise and Bozeman. People are growing. They're hungry to grow. They're innovating. It's, it's everywhere. It's not just Silicon Valley. So we've got this great hand. But when people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump, and they think they're voting, and they're basically scapegoating them, that you are like him. Uh, and, but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. And if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO. Kind of right about immigration. Mm-hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, Trade, China ta- virus. Tax reform worked. Mm-hmm. He was right about some of China. I don't, th- I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you should, have, you should always ask the why. Not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting Trump? It's hard to Trump? hate 75 million of your fellow Americans. And it's, I, I agree. It's done quite and, you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, not, hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Like, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Jimmy, and, and I do think the economy will affect. And I think this, this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. That's kind of an interesting. During the middle of that, Joe Kernan said, Kernan's been there forever, so he can say things. Kernan said China virus. And Jamie's like, no, 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 I'm not going there. I'm not going that far. I'm not going that far. Diamond probably has a lot of business interest and investing interest in and finance interest in China. And um, But it's so interesting what Joe Kernan was saying. He was right about the China virus. I mean, it's easy to say he's right about immigration. It's easy. I mean, Diamond reads polls. I mean, he's running a big bank. His, his, his opinion matters in the mainstream. So Diamond goes where he's comfortable. Immigration, NATO, trade, China. And then Kernan says the China virus. <laughs> and Diamond says, no, 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 I didn't say that. I mean, I, I didn't say that. But what Kernan basically saying is, remember when Trump said China did it? He ended up being exactly right. China did it. We know now it was more likely than not a lab leak. Now, now was it intentional? Did they infect an Asian and send them to LAX and send them to LaGuardia? I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that. But remember when Trump said, I mean, they did this on purpose. The first thing Trump needs to do when elected president in 2024 and inaugurated in 25 is send Xi Jinping a letter saying, we don't know you, Jack. I mean, the amount of devastation you impacted the global economy with is, I mean, you owe us money. I think we owe China three and a half trillion. I mean, I'm making that number up, four trillion 
It's 10% of our entire, uh, most of the debt is intra-government debt. It's domestic owned. Some, I think Japan may own more of our debt than any other foreign nation. China's second or third on the list. But I think you just sent them a, you know, paid in full. You know, we're not, we're not paying you another interest payment on the debt that we owe because of the enormous damage that you or may not have. You were obviously negligent. You may not have been intentional, but you were negligent. And we know now, despite what Fauci said, we know now that the gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Virology Lab, and I think John Stewart explained this better than anybody on one of the late-night shows, we know that was more likely than not the origin of the, as Joe Gurdon says, the China virus. And, I mean, that's just so fun for me to watch these highly decorated and esteemed experts on CNBC and Colonel leans back and says, and John of virus <laughs> and diamond guys. No, I'm, I'm going here, but I'm not going there now because I got a lot of deals cooking in China and I don't want to be uh, excluded from the finance market. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You're on. Uh, good morning. Uh, I tell you, I wouldn't want to pull up the pin on that hand grenade either. I'd let that thing go for a while because if uh, I ran JP work. Morgan, Mike, there's no way China virus would come out of my mouth. I mean, I could believe it with every fiber of my being. I could be as sure as I'm sitting behind this microphone that that is what happened. But if I ran J.P. Morgan, there is no way those two words would come out of my mouth. That'd be an expensive opinion. (laughs) And I tell you right there, but I I listened to uh, Breeze get apoplectic. Yesterday, he was so wound up about the craziness that we're going through. But I and I I sympathize with him all that. But uh, that the the thing about uh, things are not always as they see. And I, I sometimes I I dislike when they use interrogatives and they use why when they should say how did we get here or who is doing this or you know or what's going to happen next. Those those kind of things you can answer. And I think uh, what's coming around is, despite the failure of the educational system and everything, uh, there is a sizable number of people that got a grade school, at least arithmetic education, where they understand the idea of greater than, less than, more than, less than, and that that thing is like it's like Williams talking about. Oh, Ken, did you see that sign out there? It was uh, it was down to two seventy nine. Well, yeah, I'm glad it's down a few pennies, but it's a dollar more than when Trump Trump was in there. <laughs> I mean, you got to notice things like that, and uh, it hurts. And I'm wondering how long I'm how can people reasonably a reasonable person say they want to go with uh, with Biden, when they see what kind of devastation he has, he has like a, a negative uh, King Midas touch. Everything he turns turns to Dookie. It ain't worth Dookie. I'll tell you that right there. But um, that that that's just the the scary part of uh, being in uh, this country these days. And I and things are not always as they seem. I listen to the agricultural stuff. And they're saying, well, well, there's a bad harvest in Brazil and everything and all this big stuff. And they got, he's got a big voice and he's saying, and uh, but uh, China is producing more corn than making up for it in Argentina and New Zealand or wherever or Timbuktu. 
they're making more corn down there, and it's going to make up for that loss in Brazil. Well, let me tell you something. I want to know why, if they, China has a better harvest and everything, why are they buying, continuing to buy more corn? I think some of these people might lie about the actual production figures, how much they're getting out of the field. And uh, as far as this uh, uh, the production of uh, foodstuffs, because this is the kind of thing that makes people take a chain-link fence right out of the ground. And as a young man, as a teenager, I got to see a, a mob get wound up. And, and when they get wound up, they don't care about the ones at the front. That chain-link is going down. And because the ones in the back want to get to something, food or water or safety, or what they think is safety, and um, that I just think you ought to take a second look at some things because sometimes what you are looking at isn't necessarily what you think it is. Very seldom, you very very seldom is it what you think it is. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. We got to take a break. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You know the terminology critical mass. I mean, if they're a critical mass there for a uh, you know a anchored uh, anchor um, a neighborhood retail center anchored by a grocery store. I mean, it's got to be rooftops and median incomes and egress and ingress. Critical mass. I mean, in, in my world, that matters. I mean, you're thinking about doing this, is there the critical mass there? Um, it's a little bit like the Seinfeld episode of uh, Arado. What is critical mass? Well, about a half of us know and the other half doesn't, but you like to say it. It sounds like, you know, critical mass. Is there enough critical mass? Have we checked the critical mass? Um, have we gotten to a place? This is almost critical mass inverted, Josh. Have we gotten to a place, and this goes back to what you were talking about, winner and loser. Can't be a deal made. I mean, this is going to be a winner and a loser. The American people have lost in the game of politics for the last 30 years. The average American worker, I'm not talking about people who don't work and freeload. I'm not talking about wealthy, wealthy people who take advantage of all these shenanigans that Wall Street and, and Washington cook up. I'm talking about the average guy, lady, getting up, going to work, earning a living, trying to care for their family. They have lost in the game of politics for the last 30 years. Have we gotten to a place where there's such a critical mass of corruption and shenanigans is another word I'll use that you can't not reveal it. It can't not be seen. Cancer comes to mind. How many cancer cells are there? You know, is the tumor growing? Is the tumor getting, getting smaller? That's a weird example but when you talk to someone dealing with chemotherapy and, and cancer, that's what they talk about. Good report, bad report. Um, you know, we're going to build a grocery store and we're going to build some neighborhood retail because there's a critical mass there. Have we gotten to a point in American government where you can't hide the corruption? I mean, it's so rampant. It's so in your face. It's so out of control. It's so egregious. I mean, there's a million words you can use there that, that you know, and, and I'll give you an example. Here's, here's where my head is. So let's make uh, let's 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 say that somebody came along, um, very eloquent, very unique, very different, and won the presidency. He's a minority. He's unbelievably gifted at what it takes to get elected, and he says things like, "I want to transform America," and and he does. I mean, he genuinely and sincerely he transforms America. Now, I'm, this would never happen. I'm saying hypothetically, and at some point in time. In the latter days of his presidency or his post-presidency, he's asked about, you know, do you miss being president? He said, well, some of it I miss. I miss being in charge. 
And there would be a scenario that if I could run the country from my basement with my pajamas reading a Sports Illustrated, I'd, I'd probably I'd be up for that. I mean, that, that, nobody would ever say that, but I'm just saying hypothetically, if someone very different and unique and talented said, I want to transform the most powerful nation of the planet to something you won't recognize, I want to betray the principles and values of which we were founded upon, and when I'm not in office, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, if given the opportunity to put some guy up that doesn't know what he's doing, let's say some white 80-year-old dude that people are somewhat comfortable with and we can hide his dementia and his Alzheimer's and I can stay in a basement somewhere and I can pull the strings and I can be the puppet master. I mean, once again, guys, I know that's out there. And I know one, I mean, no one, no former president would ever say that if given the opportunity, I would do that. I'm making it up. But could we be in an era and age of shadow government? And is that too much critical mass? In other words, you get so comfortable with the media being on your team, academia being in your team, there is no resistance. Anything you say gets proclaimed as the gospel because you are who you've been waiting on. I mean, once again, nobody would ever say that. Nobody would ever say I mean, politics celebrates humility. Nobody would ever say, we are the ones we've been waiting on. Just like nobody would ever say, I'm going to transform America. Just like nobody would ever say that if given the opportunity to sit in my basement with pajamas on, yeah, I'd run the country in that way. So, so if transforming the country was not too much critical mass, if the, you know, the, um, the betraying of the Constitution was not too much mass or too much, um, too much critical mass, is a shadow government. Is it, I mean, in other words, are we to the limits of what people can do to control government and not be exposed? Because you would agree, I think most of us would agree, there is a growing resistance out there. I think some are well-informed, some are not quite so informed, but there is a growing resistance. I mean, it's at the center of MAGA, it's at the center of America first. I mean, you, you may want policies that advance the American family, the American worker, the American way of life, but you are resisting the status quo. I mean, you may say, well, I, no, I'm not, man. I just want fairness. No, nah, you're resisting the status quo because they don't want fairness. I mean, the moment you say, I want fairness, is the moment you become a resistor. I mean, in their words, insurrectionist, you know, rebelling against your government. You're, you're expressing yourself in a way that just strongly says, I don't like the way things are, and I want them to be, to be better. I, I, it's a weird way of getting there, but how much corruption can a government hide without being found out? And if we are in an age where the former president is actually doing what I think he's doing, that's why I watch CNN. People ask me, why do you watch CNN? Axelrod's on there. Why do you care what Axelrod says? He's, by, he's Obama's mouthpiece. I mean, why, I mean there, there's nobody's opinion that matters more today in American politics than Barack Obama. He doesn't give his opinion a lot. But Axelrod speaks for him. And, and, and there's a sentiment growing now. Oh, during the election, they talked a lot about Trump in Iowa. And I'm talking about CNN's election coverage on the Iowa caucus night. And, and Axelrod kept talking about Biden's troubles. He's underwater. His approvals. He's not fooling anybody to believe that the economy's good. Those are Obama talking points. Now there's a story this morning that can we figure out a way to get Michelle as a candidate for president? I mean, I'm, I'm moving around here, but, but I think the reason that we're in such a confrontational era is they've tried and exceeded the critical mass of corruption and shadow government that they can hide. 
and the American people are beginning to see it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't notice that for 25 years, but the last five years, and if you ever let them get one glance under the cover, they never unsee it. I mean, they never, they never, you, you can't clear their mind of that corruption. And I go back to, we're talking about Jamie Dimon a second ago. People have asked me a, a hundred times, did you see Trump coming? Yeah, I did. I mean, I didn't think he'd be a billionaire. I've said that a hundred times. What made you think Trump was coming? The day we bailed the banks out, we were talking about Jamie Dimon. The day the American taxpayer funded the bailout of the wealthiest institutions in America was the day that I knew populism was going to be, for an extended period of time, populism was going to be the accelerant on the fire that gets us to, once again, Josh, a winner and an eventual loser. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Breeze, good morning. What did that boy call me? I don't get to have a dictionary of it. So I don't know what the hell it even means. But uh, anyway, you ever watch it rustle again when, we were, when you were a boy on oh, yeah. Saturday morning? I ain't talking about that stuff up in New York. I'm talking about Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Of course I watched it. My granddaddy and I watched it together. That's a good enough. Appreciate it, my man. I'm ashamed to know how many nicknames I know. The Minnesota Wrecking Crew, the Johnny Weaver Roll, Mr. Number One Paul Jones. I mean, that's, that's crazy that I even <laughs> that I even know that. And it's rehearsed. It's not fake. 843-661. That's an interesting analogy. I mean, you want to buy into the goodness of the human soul, right? I mean, there's a guy looking at you. I'm sorry, man. I, I, I shouldn't have done it. I did it. I won't do it again. Shake my hand, and we'll all kind of sing kumbaya and get to a better place. Um, together. You don't buy that, Josh. I mean, you don't buy that for a second. There is, I think, a belief. No, belief would be the there is a recognition. Diamond recognizes something's different. Now, now how he navigates it, I'm like Breeze. He doesn't like me. He doesn't like Rev. He doesn't like um, Josh. But he recognizes that there is a threatening force, not to their legitimacy, but to their power, their influence. I mean, J.P. Morgan will always be legitimate. How has it become? 
how has it exceeded legitimacy to get to a place of unbelievable and enormous power and influence? Um, I mean, I, it would probably surprise us how many times the Treasury of the White House calls someone like Jamie Dimon and tell them what they're thinking about in stimulus or quantitative tightening or or whatever, whatever sort of geopolitical um, you know issue, Ukraine, Israel. It would probably it would probably make us angry and upset to know what they know that we don't. I mean, I expect Diamond to know things I don't know. I mean, I get that. I don't expect him to know that much more. And I think he knows that much more about the, the, the world of politics and the economy and where they converge and what policy does to this and that or the other. You remember the interview Nancy Pelosi gave and someone questioned her investing strategy. And she said, what, what do you mean? I mean, do you not know who I am? I mean, she never defended it. You don't know who you're talking to? Take a break back in a few. In my 60 years of being on this planet, you know when I kick the can down the road when I know there's not a good answer, when I know there's not an easy answer, Washington today is dealing with a scenario of which it knows there is no easy answer except a short gap funding measure or a, a omnibus bill or a continuing resolution, short-term funding bill. I mean, that's the language you use and the, and the, the political jiu-jitsu necessary when you have an issue and you know the answer is extremely, extremely complicated. Um, we're talking about another government shutdown. Um, I think Congress did or will pass another short-term funding bill. I think they did that yesterday, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Fox News Radio goes, Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. And do I have my facts straight? Good morning. And yes, you do have your facts straight. They did pass a short-term funding bill, and the government is now open until March 1st and March 8th. So where is this money coming from, Ryan? I mean, is it, uh, I mean, I, I understand you borrow money, you fund the government, the Fed buys the debt. I mean, I, I get that. But I mean, is there any seriousness about addressing this issue that most people believe will have generational consequence? Well, it's funny you mentioned that, and this is going to go completely off the government funding track. But yesterday, uh, there was a markup for a bill to start a debt commission through the House Budget Committee, and it does have some bipartisan support. So essentially what they want to do is start a debt commission. Uh, they don't know how they're going to get this passed through you know, a divided government right now, but essentially this would look at ways to address the national debt. And I think they are pretty much are open to all options being on the table, and some of those things might not be politically sexy, which include you know, increases but also significant spending cuts. Uh, entitlement reform, all of that. And that's what they're going to try to address if they are, in fact, able to get this debt commission established. That's a little bit encouraging. Ron, how long is the government funded for now? Right. So we have parts of the government. So you're looking at the Department of uh, Tra Transportation, Housing, Urban Development, uh, as well as the Department of Energy, which are going to be under this March 1st deadline. So they have to pass those individual appropriation spending bills, get them negotiated in both chambers, and then sent to the president's desk before that March 1st deadline, the rest will be under March 8th. So those are the two key deadlines we're looking at right now. And they're working on a plan post those dates? Well, so so the House has passed a number of those uh, individual bills already. The Senate, I believe, has passed a couple as well. But they have to finish passing each of them out of their respective chambers, then go and negotiate them. So you have Republicans who are trying to get a number of conservative victories through some of these ones. But obviously, they've got to negotiate with a, a Senate that's run by Democrats. 
Democrats, and then they have to go through President Biden in the White House. So it's a tough task for Republicans to get these conservative wins out of this. But some of them think they can, but it's just they have to have it be in a position where they're negotiating from a position of strength. Very well explained. Ron, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. Hey, you too, you too, sir. Thank you so much. Another Blue Ribbon Committee. Now let's appoint another Blue Ribbon Committee um, to study the debt. Um, I don't need to study the debt. You know what? It's a lot of money. Mm. <laughs> it's a lot of money that we're spending that we don't have. And inevitably, we're going to be answered to that to that bottom line. I don't have any idea when it is. I don't have any idea. I mean, there's a bit of me. This is the weirdest theory I have today. And I've told some friends of mine, I would probably rather a Democrat be in the White House from 24 to 28, exclusive to the debt. I mean, I, I understand there's other things. I mean, there's the border. There's you know, intervention. I mean, there, there's a lot of other things uh, that Republicans disagree passionately with Democrats on. But when it comes to, I mean, if the the party that decides to aggressively deal with the debt will be heroic in the long term, but ruinous in the short. I mean, it is. I mean, if the Republican Party appoints a debt commission, the debt commission genuinely, genuinely, sincerely tries to address the debt, there's going to be a tremendous political price to pay in the short term. But 50 or 60 or 70 years from now, your actions will be deemed heroic. The problem with politics today is, it's the here and now. I mean, Wall Street, what what is the bottom line this quarter and next quarter? And my compensation is based on the performance of the stock. And what does Wall Street think of, of this stock? I mean, politics is no different. It's in the here and now. But the people that decide that we can't spend a trillion dollars a year that we don't have to fund programs, no matter how worthy they may or may not be, in the long run, you will be looked at by fellow Americans as heroic. You'll lose your seat. I mean, you won't be allowed back in Congress, but you will have made the moral and ethical choice necessary to get our financial house back on some model of sustainability. So, Let's go to the phone. I was going to ask, but they, so they did continuing resolutions. Speaker Johnson has negotiated that deal, but isn't this pretty much the same thing that caused them to vacate uh, McCarthy? Well, I mean, Johnson got a better deal. He got more spending cuts. He got some pre-COVID spending levels. I mean, he more aggressively pursued an, a conservative agenda, but Rev, the only way to go there is to put entitlements on the table. I mean, that's the only way. You can't cut enough out of discretionary spending. You just can't. I mean, you cannot cut. You cannot cut enough out of military. You can't cut enough out of, um, I mean, you got you got four obligations. You've got service to debt. I mean, that's non-negotiable. People don't loan you money if they don't pay it back. you got service in the debt. You've got Medicare and Medicaid and, and Social Security, which are big. I mean, they're just not government programs. They're huge voting blocks. So we, we're married to those four programs in their current construct, and they are the drivers of the debt. There are things to do. I, 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 I preach this over and over and over again. Social Security is not that complicated. I mean, it's not like going to a drive-thru and ordering a cheeseburger. I mean, it's a little more than that. But Social Security is not that complicated. You raise the eligibility age, period. First thing you do, you take, when can I receive full benefit? What is the average life expectancy and you run models, and you create a financial formula that works. And yes, it's unfair to Josh, but you know what's more unfair to Josh? Saddling him with $50 trillion in federal debt. 
I mean, if Josh had either or, hey, Josh, either you can work two and a half years longer to be eligible for Social Security, or your generation can figure out to do with what to do with $75 trillion in federal debt. I mean, if Josh has any economic understanding, you know what he says? Yeah, I'll work another two and a half years. And we begin addressing the spending curve. The spending curve. As weird as this sounds, COVID was good for Social Security. COVID pushed out some of the actuary models that say we'll run out of money, be insolvent by such and such a date. Um, a lot of older people died more than normal. That more than normal people collecting Social Security that no longer are alive, I mean, it changed the model a little bit. Not, not tremendously, and it didn't fix the problem. I mean, I'll give you the weirdest example in the world. The biggest, the biggest fix to Social Security and Medicare, you know what it'd be? I mean, you're going to say, you nut. You can't say that on the radio. Well, I'll say it. You ready? You know what would really address a lot of the issues regarding Social Security and Medicare in America today? A 75-foot tsunami that drowned and killed all the 70-year-old retirees up and down the East Coast. You did say it. Well, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I, I'm being crazy, <laughs> but that's where we've got ourselves. I mean, those are the kind of crazy scenarios and phenomena that have to happen for us to get this financial situation back in order. And it's not, I mean, I think we spend too much on the military, but military spending is not the driver of the debt. We can address that. We made these promises that we simply cannot afford. And we got to tell Josh that two and a half years, I mean, I know what, you're, I know what the promise we made, Josh, but, but we, we, we lied to you. And you're going to have to work two and a half more years more than you thought you were to be eligible for full benefit. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. I remember the wonderful Simpson Bowles Commission. Remember that back when Obama first became president and they were trying to get a hold of the, the debt and the spending and they came out with a deal to balance the budget by 2020. And that was with cuts to Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and work programs and everything else. But, you know, they, they started on this, this road back in 1999 and I've mentioned this before when they got rid of Glass-Steagall and allowed the banks to uh, take down the firewall between commercial and uh, normal accounts and started investing. Everybody had to have a house, so that, that started the upswing of housing costs until it couldn't happen anymore. That's why I always say something will go on until it can't go on. But Simpson Bowles was the answer to everything. If you want to fix Social Security, you got to prepare people. Say this ten-year window is going to be cut by what twenty-five percent. If they don't do anything, then guess what? I propose don't do anything. Go ahead and tell people you're going to get twenty-five percent less. I could do it today. I'm I'm one of those. 72 years old, but I didn't prepare my life and my finances around Social Security. I knew it was a joke. Back in 1970, when I first started full-time work, so I prepared myself to take care of myself and not depend on the government. So we, 
we got we got to face some hard choices, and I think a good place to start would be a twenty five percent cut across the board, and make people work. You know, the, the Bible says you don't work, you don't eat. I'm all for taking care of people that can't take care of themselves, but if you're an able-bodied citizen, you should have to work at least a little bit to to get what you need. Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you. Appreciate that, Joe. I mean, I I did a podcast. Rev and I did a podcast a couple of days ago uh, on No Stoplights, and and it was a little bit about a, I don't know, a bit we did on this show about the services industry, the hospitality business, and how they're struggling to find quality employees that care, genuinely appreciate the opportunity to earn a little bit of money. And I'm not talking about careerists. I'm talking about people who are just starting out of the workforce. And, I mean, I read a stat, and, and Josh, I don't think I told you this stat, but because we hadn't published or edited uh, the podcast yet. Rev does that. Um, but I went back and read, and this is interesting to me. I went back and read some statistics from 1990. I mean, that's 33 years ago. Might have been 80, 80 or 90, 33 or 43 years ago. They polled about 418 to 25-year-olds. And they asked how many 18 to 25, 418 to 25-year-olds, would you work if you had enough money not to? 7% of 18 to 25-year-olds in 1980 or 90, I can't, and I'll misspeak. I'm giving myself a little runaway here, either in 1980 or 1990, because somebody will say, no, you said 90. No, I'm saying 1980 or 1990, 7% of 18 to 25-year-olds said they wouldn't work if they had enough money not to. That number's over 30% today. There is intrinsic value in work. Work is not simply something to earn a paycheck. I mean, that's how we sustain ourselves. That's how we provide for our families. That's how we, you know, do, do some pretty cool things like buy Gamecock football tickets and Clemson football tickets and go to the beach and 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 sponsor ball. I mean, it, money is a big part of the economy, no doubt about that. But there is a natural intrinsic value to the work experience. And I think we've conditioned young people to believe there's a little dishonor. You can do better than drive that forklift. You could do better than drive that truck. I mean, why would you want to drive that truck and 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 put those cartons on a on a pallet somewhere? And and we've diminished that value. We we've convinced society that sweat of the brow, you know, dirt under the fingernails occupations are a little less honorable. We've out we've outlived that. I mean, that's a little bit cavemanish. No, no, that is the natural intrinsic value in work. And I know I've shared this story, but I said it on the podcast. We have convinced, and I am so guilty of this, we have convinced a generation of young people. I don't think Josh is like this, but we have, in in general, convinced a generation of young people that they are the center of the universe. And when you ask that person, that young person who's been convinced that they are the center of the universe to go to work for eight hours and make something else the center of the universe, they don't know how to do it. They've been told by people who love them and care for them, and it's kind of innate in all of us. I mean, every one of us kind of sort of want to be center of the universe. Well, I don't want to be center of the universe. I don't want to be that important. I don't want the bright light shining on me. Ah, okay. I mean, th- th- there, there's Mother Teresa, but most of us are Taylor Swift if given the opportunity, right? I mean, how many donations <laughs> are made uh, with, with a name on a building? How many made anonymous? 
I mean, one of the great things we love about Mr. Avant, I mean, all the donations he made to charities, I don't know of a building named after him. I don't know of a road or a street named after him. I mean, he did it anonymously. He understood, and I don't want to use him as, as a single example, but he understood he didn't have to go to work late in life, but he did. And he had a name tag like every other employee at Pepsi. But, but he understood there is intrinsic value in work. Work is not just a way to earn a living. It is a way to create a personal wealth and sense of accomplishment. And we're losing that. And not only are we losing it, those of us who know better are empowering those who don't that it's okay to believe that. It's okay to believe that you're the center of the universe. You're not. I'm not. We all are collectively in the aggregate, kind of, sort of, the center of the universe. Take a break. Back in a few. And I, I want to say that you have every right to be angry and expect a certain level of service. You do. I mean, the economy, you pay X number of dollars for a meal or an experience. You have every right to believe that you've been underserved or the, or the, or the product's not as good. I mean, I'm not saying don't demand better. I mean, you have every right. The problem I have is the non-business owner not understanding the complications that the business owners are dealing with today. The federal government became a competitor in the marketplace of employment. And people realized they could stay home and make as much as they could going to work. And it made running a business in the service and hospitality industry unbelievably complicated. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. As I drive down West Palmetto Street against the wind with my name badge <laughs> on, um, I want to follow up. First of all, let me say that the way to fix Social Security is you got to increase the age at which people can get benefits, and you got to eliminate the cap on Social Security contributions. And I think we've talked about this before, but you know, it used to be thirty-something thousand dollars, and I think now it's one hundred and sixty thousand. But you make over that, you don't contribute to Social Security anymore. Um, they need to eliminate that cap, and that'll make and and increase the age. I had to wait until I was sixty-six to start drawing. Social Security, when it used to be 65. And there are some people, friends of mine, that will have to wait until they're 67 or older. So it, it already is moving up some. And you just we're just going to have to slowly move that up. And that'll take care of it. I also want to follow up on something that Mike said um, maybe 45 minutes, an hour ago. I don't know, Mike. I wouldn't know him if he walked uh, in front of my truck right now, but I tell you, I agree a whole lot with a whole lot of what he says. And what he said was he felt that Biden had the Midas touch. And I agree, he does have the Midas touch because everything he touches turns to a damn muffler. And that's just the way it's been. Y'all have a great week. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. I'd be one of Charles's friends that have to wait until, I think he's, I think my, my, my retirement full Benefit age is sixty-seven mm -hmm. years and six months, something like that. Got adjusted back in the in the Reagan era. And when we're talking about stopgap funding, I mean the, the problem. I went to the Senate one day when I was presiding officer, lieutenant governor, and Senator Ryberg, Greg Ryberg, fiscal conservative, is kind of pain in the butt. I mean, Ryberg could be a difficult cat, but he was a business guy, understood the unfunded liabilities of retirement and pension plans of the public sector. And Ryberg had a fifty-five gallon drum sitting by the well in the Senate. And I remember thinking, I mean, I'm from the country. I said, the damn building leaking? I mean, you know, uh, get a roofer here and fix that. We don't need to have a, a session of Senate with the yeah, building leaking. we don't need it. But Rob Burr was using that as an illustration. We're not kicking a can down the road anymore. 
We're kicking a 55-gallon drum down the road anymore. And there's going to be some political consequence to aggressively addressing the debt. But I do believe that a generation of leaders in Washington have a unique opportunity to be long-term heroes in saving the financial state of the greatest nation man has ever known. And I know it's hard to, to, to vote to take something from someone. I mean, it's easy for me as a radio show host. I don't vote on anything. But, but to say we got to adjust Medicare, we got to change the eligibility age and, and so some of the, uh, the taxes that collect. I mean, I'm with Charles. Raise the, um, raise the exemption. I mean, tax all income. I get it. That's a tax increase. I'm a Republican. I'm supposed to be opposed to tax increases. By and large, I am. But if I can get a deal that raises the eligibility age and generates a little more revenue by taxing people who make north of $167,000 a year to stop spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have, I think the consequence of that rev is less than the consequence of not addressing uh, the debt. We're leaving a generation of young people a debt that they just cannot service. I mean, that's where we're headed uh, one of the guys that can do something about it, I'm talking about, I'm a radio show host. I don't vote on anything. I like that freedom and flexibility. Russell Fry, Congressman Russell Fry, has an official responsibility. And Russell, uh, good morning, first of all. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's, uh, it's, it's better in district today. We flew back yesterday. It's cold up there and uh, flying to New Hampshire tomorrow. Uh, so it's going to be even colder. But, uh, yeah, it's good to be home. Russell, there is an order of priority. There always has to be. Right now, immigration is a hot-button issue. Whether or not to impeach Mayorkas is a hot-button issue. But the debt keeps growing, and we seem to not be as interested in doing something about it. What is your take, not on what we should or should not do, but how do we begin having a serious conversation about spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have? No, we, we have to make those tough choices. And, and you know, House Democrats are not going to be supportive of that. They're not going to be supportive of anything um, that's beyond tomorrow. And so when you look at the long-term fiscal trajectory, you know, you have to, to realize that. And so that's, it's so important for conservatives, for Republicans to be united on the spending side and, and making sure that we're, we're holding things accountable, that we change the culture of Washington, that we change the fiscal habits that have been – ingrained in that place for decades that, that we can just print money and spend it and there's no consequences just keep busting out their credit card well at some point when people do that and people often make you know bad financial decisions at some point people have to wake up and realize we can't keep doing this and what we're talking about yesterday we had a vote on a continuing resolution that continued nancy pelosi and joe biden's budget from before house republicans even took over and we keep saying we don't want to do continuing resolutions. I don't want to do a continuing resolution. I'm, I'm tired of it. And, and until we actually cut spending, um, and I've, I've, look, I've voted for fiscal packages that actually cut spending. Um, you know, the, the Limit Save Grow and the Freedom Caucus was behind that one. You had a lot of conservative wins. It, it, it trimmed the, the discretionary spending that we have uh, in a way that was productive and, and saved a ton of money. Uh, but until we actually start dealing with that, I mean, if we can't even deal with the discretionary spending, we're, we're never going to be able to truly tackle the problem with the mandatory. And so if you're going to change habits, you have to do it, but you don't do it by continuing to perpetuate Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer's failed budget from 2022. Russell, 
I'd love to know the answer to this. You and I know it's a problem. I mean, there's a financial reality. Government can, I mean, they can wiggle off the hook a lot longer than a business can or an individual or a family by being, you know, fiscally responsible. But is there, are there people in Washington? Because I read a lot about modern monetary theory and Keynesian economies. And, and I mean, you know, there's a lot of academics that, that believe as long as you're printing your own currency and buying your own currency and in charge of your own... Is there, are there people, I mean, I would imagine there are some Democrats that don't see the danger in the debt. Is that fair that there are actually people up there who buy into this modern monetary theory that the debt is not a big a deal as you and I think it is? Well, I think that's right. But I don't think that it goes, you know, uh, uh, into an intellectual exercise with, with a lot of them. I think it's just a reality that they're going to keep pushing programs and things and promising things that, that, that push their base or that, that push you know, more government intrusion into our individual lives. I mean, it's kind of at the heart of it. That's kind of the democratic philosophy. And so I don't know that they get into a whole bunch of monetary stuff, quite frankly, but um, the reality is, I mean, $34 trillion in debt. We are, we are killing, we are killing the working class because we continue to perpetuate this spending problem. Our part, part of our inflation, most of our inflation is, directly correlated to the amount of money that is being printed in Washington, devalues the dollar. And look at what's going on on the world stage, too, Ken, is you've got Russia and China and other countries that are trying to kind of create their own international currency. That affects the dollar, right? And they're doing that because the dollar is kind of viewed as weak, not state, you know, not as stable as it maybe once was. And so if we're going to, if we're going to have that influence on the world stage from an economic might perspective, one of the biggest catalysts to, to prohibiting China and Russia and other bad actors from doing what they're doing is to have a sound fiscal policy, which we don't have. You mentioned inflation. It was surprising to me to see the exit polling in Iowa. The people were motivated by immigration first, inflation second. I know immigration's a big deal. I still thought inflation would carry the day. There's scuttlebutt. I mean, we're hearing some things about impeachment and Mayorkas. Somebody seems to be irresponsibly absent from um, doing what's necessary to, to secure the border. Where's Congressman Fry in regards to Mayorkas, immigration, border security, and I guess ultimately impeachment? Well, impeachment of Mayorkas is a must, and, and I don't use that term lightly. I, I don't think we should, right? I mean, it's very serious. But here, you've got a clear dereliction of duty. You've got times that he's perjured himself in front of Congress saying that he has control of the southern border, which is a laughable suggestion um, that he would even say that. Um, I don't think that you've ever seen, and there's been a lot of bad government bureaucrats, but I don't think you've ever seen somebody as bad as, as Alejandro Mayorkas. And, and he has to be held accountable. I don't think that uniquely solves the entire issue, but I think it's one of the things that we must do uh, to hold this administration accountable. Look, border security is a growing concern amongst not only just Republicans, but independents and conservatives. People are looking at 300 Americans a day dying from fentanyl overdoses, the human trafficking and humanitarian crisis and the scourge that's happening on the southern border, how our agents are being used to process individuals and give them cell phones and not actually do their job as a law enforcement agency. They're frustrated. They're done with it. They're absolutely done with it. And uh, so I'm a little bit surprised that that was the number one. But I'm also not that surprised, too, because it, it's been kind of neck and neck with economic issues for a while. But people are just done with it. I mean, they really are. And it's not even a partisan issue, Ken, until you cross the Potomac into Washington, D.C., 
where Democrats just completely, uh, up until recently, turn a blind eye to it. But you're starting to see some cracks in their armor where, where Democrats are known for staying together, sticking together. You're, you're even now starting to see congressional Democrats um, criticize this administration for their handling of the southern border. And, and to see that, I think, is, you know, there are alarm bells going off within the Democratic Party right now um, because people are just done with with the lawlessness that is going on. You mentioned um, New Hampshire. Uh, we're leaving Iowa, kind of a quirky way to to do a primate caucus, uh, you know, 100,000 degrees below zero. Had, you know, 110,000 people show up. Now we're off to New Hampshire. It's a little bit different. Independents and Democrats, we believe, participate at a little higher rate than they would somewhere um, like South Carolina. What is Russell Fry's take thus far on the Republican presidential primary as it's now fully underway? Well, I think, you know, Iowa was a, a validation of what we've seen in the polling, which is this is a primary in name only. It's, it's Donald Trump's uh, party. He is the nominee. And we're just waiting for the calendar to hit the various days to basically show that he will be our nominee and he'll be the 47th president of the United States. And, you know, my, my concern is that the longer that, uh, you know, the DeSantis or Nikki Haley stay in the race, um, that we're wasting resources that could otherwise be used. Uh, on Joe Biden. And so I think President Trump was right in his remarks after the Iowa caucuses, which is now is the time, given the, 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 the margin of victory, now is the time to coalesce. Now is the time to you know come together as a party. And now is the time to start getting ready for November. Look, Joe Biden has, has more money in his bank account today than any other Democratic presidential candidate or nominee um, ever. And so it's really, you know, this is it's not always about money, but it certainly helps. And so the, the less that we are spending on each other and the more that we can focus on the other side, the better outcome possibility we have in November. And so it's time. And so I'll be in New Hampshire with the president. Uh, there are very few people that I'll go to eight-degree weather for, uh, but I will do that for Donald Trump. Um, we'll be up there in New Hampshire tomorrow with him uh, campaigning and trying to pull him, you know, push him across the finish line, and then we'll get ready for South Carolina. Well said. Russell, thank you for your time, man, on this F-R-Y-D-A-Y Friday. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good weekend. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Josh continues to excel at his selection of 70s and 80s bumper music. I think he's... Was that Bruce? Uh, no, it was no. Mellencamp. Actually, John Cougar at the time yeah. changed his name to John Cougar Mellencamp, then changed his name again to John Mellencamp, the evolution, the energy evolution we were talking about this morning, that would be the rock and roll evolution. Guy names himself John Cougar, makes a splash, wants to pay tribute to his family name, so he goes John Cougar Mellencamp, and then says, I'm not young and rambunctious and an outlaw and a renegade any longer, so John Mellencamp is now what he's known as. Right, Rev? I mean, you're the correct. rock and roll aficionado. I think that explains it very well. Okay, let's go to the phone. And, we, and it's all the same guy. Same guy. All the same dude. A lot of hits. More names than SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> right. I got a buddy of mine who inherited a grandkid. I mean, you guys that listen a lot, you've heard this story, but it's still, if you knew the dude, it's funny. I got a buddy who inherited a grandkid. He had a kid. Kid got uh, married. They had a child. They didn't do as they were supposed to. Things didn't quite work out. The kid was not getting properly cared for. He said, I'll take the kid. Grandma and I will take the kid. So he's 62 or three with a one-year-old kid. 
you know, wandering around his house. Last thing he imagined he'd ever have, but he's a good guy. And good guys step up when it's time to step up. So he stepped up. They took care of the grandkid. Um, and he comes to work one morning and he says, I mean, he, he spent, I mean, he never imagined that at that age he'd be sitting in front of a television watching cartoons. But he is. And he comes to work one morning and he says, I said, what'd you do last night, man? He said, I sat up with such and such. I mean, I don't want to name the fact. I sat up with the grandkid and watched SpongeBob SquarePants. And he paused and he said, hey, man, that's one dude. (laughs) 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 All right, SpongeBob SquarePants sounds like several people, right? A lot of of names But but the way he said it, I think what he did, I know him. I think he watched and said, where's where's SquarePants? I mean, if that's SpongeBob, where where SquarePants? Mm-hmm. And he finally realized, hey, that's SpongeBob Bob and SquarePants. That's one dude. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. Good morning. Uh, am I correct in assuming that we have a large majority of Republicans in our state re- House of Representatives? We have a super majority, Daphne. Okay. Uh, why then are we uh, 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 emulating what the Democrats did in Washington when they eliminated the rules and forbid anyone from uh, adding amendments to any bill. Uh, I heard that, and I want you to please ask our representatives why a Republican second-in-command of the majority speaker would go into consultation with the Democrats and agree to do that. Also, a misnamed uh, bill that's going through that I would like them to address as to what is in it is the gender-affirming care bill. Now, that, to me, if they are considering uh, allowing children to be mutilated they should not be able to lay down and sleep at night because eventually, if they do that as Republicans, we will end up where Maine is, where they are threatening to take children from their parents and give them surgery and uh, medication. For the rest of their life, they have to take that medication. Now, if you've got little Johnny and little Jenny sitting in a kindergarten class and little Johnny is playing tea party with little Jenny and that uh, psychologist that works at our school says, well, he is uh, really a girl. Let's take him away from his parents and have his sex changed. Also, you were addressing something about Social Security. Did you know that over the last two years, that illegal immigrants have cost us in the federal taxpayer dollars $490 billion. Did you know that our Social Security booklets that are mailed out are printed in 13 different languages? And at the end of that page, they ask if you speak another language that you can request for it to be printed in your language. Now, my question is, if you've been here long enough to work and draw Social Security and haven't learned the language, isn't there something wrong with that? And 
when they put SSI under Social Security, they made every illegal that walks in here and says they're disabled eligible for SSI. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Well, I mean, what they've done, they've taken diversity and allowed it to be become multiculturalism. I mean, I, the, the diversity's fine. I mean, I, you know, as far as Jerry Seinfeld was being interviewed by one of these woke reporters somewhere at a, um, I don't know, one of these sit-downs. He's got a live audience. Seinfeld's kind of iconic in the world of comedy and sitcom in particular. Um, and he's got blank you money. I mean, he does. He's a wealthy man now. Caught lightning in a bottle. He and Larry David both can tell everybody to do whatever he chooses to tell them to do. But the guy kind of cornered him on, you know, I noticed that in a lot of your he does this this YouTube special. I don't understand. It might be Netflix. Uh, he's in a car, and he's got somebody riding yeah. with him. And I mean, there's a name of it. It's popular. It's made him even more money, I guess. But the, the guy kind of started down the road of, well, I noticed the majority of your guests are white. And Seinfeld says, okay, we're, we're going to have fun now. You're going down that road. He said, look, I'm in the business of being funny. And if you're funny, I don't care if you're white, black, green, yellow, tall, short, Republican, Democrat, Gamecock, Tiger. I'm in the business of humor and comedy. And I don't care if it's all white people or all black people or all Hispanic people or all, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm in the business. It, it is It is a it genuinely, it's a weird um, niche of our economy. But, you know, I mean, comedy is a, a com. I mean, it's, it's a part of the economy. Uh, comedy is a part of the economy. That's kind of hard um, to say. But, but, no, I believe that diversity is fine. I don't know that diversity should be celebrated. I'm not real concerned at how many blacks and how many whites and how many women and how many men. I don't care if we reflect society. I mean, if, if all the best comics are black, then all the best comics are black. If all the best NBA basketball players are white, then all the best NBA basketball players are white. I use that because that's not the case. Um, diversity is just a ruse as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what it means anymore. Uh, Mark Cuban is one of these diversity zealots. And, you know, he he defends DEI and he defends some of these inclusionary measures that the government makes as part of the process of getting the right percent of this kind of student at Harvard, getting the right percent of that kind of student. No. Have you worked hard enough to be here? And will you work hard enough to stay here? I mean, that's the central theme of a capital economy or market-based economy. And, and we don't have that. Diversity's fine. I am for diversity. If it fits, I am totally opposed to multiculturalism under any circumstance. I think when someone comes to our nation legally, they have an obligation to assimilate. They have an obligation to understand. I mean, I know it's not as simple as when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do, but it's close. I mean, there's an American way. It's not my way. It's not Josh's way. It's not Rev's way. It's the American way. Well, what is that? Well, I mean, you know it when you see it. I mean, there are confines to the American way. There are guardrails that preserve and protect the American way. And and we have people coming into this country seeking, a, uh, I'm going to be very, very, uh, seeking opportunity. Some earned, some given. But they're seeking a better way. Some want to earn a better way. Some want to be given a better way. But the least I think they can do is accept that when you come to America, there is an American way. And you've got to obligate yourself to the American way. Now, that doesn't mean Ken's interpretation of the American way or Dave's interpretation of the American way. But, but multiculturalism 
is 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 evil. I mean, it's wicked. It it is destructive. It will absolutely destroy this nation at its core. Diversity, I'm for it. If they're good. I mean, I don't have any guy, you know, if all the players on this team are black and all the players on that team are white and they're the best they've got, you know, screw diversity. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We have one member of the delegation with us this morning. Rocking his Gamecock attire. Good morning, there you go. Senator Mike Rickenbaugh. How are you? We'd like to say the best-looking member of the delegation. I'd like to say that with nobody here. So. You are out absolutely amongst the ones here today. I'll let you guys hash that out between the three of you. Um, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. It's a and pleasure. maybe the other straggle in here just a bit. I think Jordan may be oh, we go. Uh, walking in the door. Don't know where the gunslinger is, so we don't have to play the appropriate music. These guys apparently don't understand that 8 o'clock means 8 o'clock. We'll, we'll address that during the break, Rev. I mean, if you and I are as highly dedicated as we are, certainly these esteemed members of the of the public sector can be. And they equally, are running on government equally. time. They're back in session, so they're running on government time. Well, I mean, if, time. It, if it's Senate time, it starts at about, I mean, I can't speak for House, but but the Senate clock is not a, a, a functioning of of normalcy. I think all three are here now. Yeah. Oh, here and um, what, what do you want to say, Jay? I mean, you, you, you struggle at last minute. You're going to feel bad when you hear why I'm running late. Okay. I mean, you're going, you're going to apologize. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll apologize now. So I'm trying to leave on, because normally I'm the first one here, by the way, even before Dave and Ken. Right. Um, right, right. <laughs> you are, you're waiting on us in the parking lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the, the committed public servant that he is. Yeah, he's here. I'm, I'm trying to get out the door and my kids, one of my, my oldest is driving now, which is a whole nother experience. I'm not prepared for, but he called and said, dad, the neighbor's dog is loose. Um, about to get on the second loop. So I go to try and help, try and help my neighbor's dog. Ken, that's why I was running. Okay. Late. Didn't want to do it. Felt like it was the Mike Rickenbaugh thing to do. Uh, <laughs> well, did you catch the dog? It, it, never saw the dog. <laughs> isn't there, isn't there some law against dogs running around? Without well, leashes that's and you and my neighbor, Ken. Okay, you're right. Well, no, you're the lawmaker. I wanted you to fix it. I mean, come on. Is there some Philip? Surely we can't have dogs running around neighborhoods. Well, I, I apologize for being late. That's a pretty good excuse, though. <laughs> by the way, I'm but impressed. I've been duck hunting, killed a limit, came home, washed myself, and more importantly, washed the dog before I came into the house with it. And I'm here one minute late, and I will say that Mike Rickenball was the best-looking guy in the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Fair, fair enough. I don't have a question, Mike. I'll start with you since you were first in the room. I don't have a question per se, but, I mean, we're starting this session of the General Assembly. Um, everybody has things they want to get to the front of the line. Everybody has things that they'd rather let be and not mess with right now. Um, what is your reflections on the on the first bit of of Senate in this year, in in the two weeks we've been, this is really the substantive week. First week was more administrative. Uh, I think my reflection, Ken, is the the realization of just how polarized we are as a society, and even in South Carolina. Now we're not New York or or Portland or Chicago or San Francisco, but even though I consider South Carolina a red state, a conservative state a Republican state, there is a, a chasm between the left and the right. And the left think they're as correct in their beliefs as the right does. Um, a big bill we had to take up was the the minor prescription bill, where minors would be able to get prescriptions without their parents noticing, because there was a health care center up in York County that was allowing that. And 
hearing the some of the, the the other senators, even some Republican senators, take the position of, you know, I wouldn't love it if my 13-year-old was sexually active, but wouldn't we rather they get on birth control? And if me knowing stops that, I just think we need to revisit this. And they think that's okay. Now, I disagree. Not only do I not want my 13-year-old having sex, but I don't think they should go get birth control or STD medication and, and I should be cut out of that equation. As a parent, don't cut me out of parenting because a 13-year-old is going to make bad decisions, a 14-year-old, 15-year-old. So it is it is a challenging time because I realize that just as, what, 70, 80 million people voted for Biden, we don't know the exact number. They, it was not as many as they said, but a lot of people did. They believe it, and they continue to believe it as much as we believe we're right. We've got to work on educating people on right and wrong jake totally agree um it took us a little while that first week to kind of get the uh, the dust uh, knocked off and get the machine going again so to speak um but philip and i sat on the house floor until uh, pretty late into the evening wednesday night debating the help not harm bill which is basically the most important the crux of that bill is a minor can't have uh, transgender, unre- irreversible transgender surgery. Um, let that sink in for just a minute that we debated that for hours and hours and hours and fought amendments back just so um, a minor couldn't have that procedure uh, and then get become an adult and say, what in the world? Why would anyone let a child have that type of irreversible surgery? Um you know, these are the kind of arguments that we shouldn't have to have. You know, the Democrats say, why are we even talking about this? We're talking about this because this is happening, maybe not to the degree it's happening in other states here in South Carolina. But, you know, I go back to some other debates we've had like that. You know, we learned from Georgia on a lot of the significant problems they had with elections that we didn't have in South Carolina going back to their last cycle. Um should we have just waited on those problems to come to South Carolina before we address those like we did? No. We t- when you see things happening just because they're not happening in abundance in your state, you learn from the things around you. And, and we get that right sometimes and we, and we get that slow sometimes. But, you know, I'm a little bit nervous. So this week my subcommittee passed out uh, the age verification for pornographic websites. I don't think they're – I think we're going to have to fight that now, and I don't think that should be much of a fight. You shouldn't have – if you're a minor, you shouldn't have access to that information, and you should have to lock in your age ID to, to be able to view that if that's if, if you're an adult. Um, the next thing after that is a social media screening-type device for minors. The parents should be able to be the ones in charge of that, not the kids. But these are things we're going to have to fight out, fight out on the floor of the House and the Senate, I'm afraid. Philip? I think we had a pretty good week. We started picking judges, and uh, I think there was a, a lot of good done there. We'd interviewed a lot of them last week and we were able to begin voting the slow process of, of committing to a vote the vote occurs in a week or two. Um, and of course the, the bill that, that changes men and women or girls and boys cross sex, all this intersex, that was words I had never heard of. Um, but we had the threat of a lot of amendments and Daphne called in talking about a rule change that, that she had been informed about it hadn't taken place yet. The rule change would would make it so that these 500 amendments wouldn't get knocked on the desk and just punish you for no reason. We're not really governing doing that. We're 
for doing silly amendments like they'll ask you, well, would blue be okay? And then next amendment be, well, would red be okay? And they'd go through these dilatory <laughs> type amendments. So we we were managed to get through the bill that that did no harm. What was it? Help, help, help not, not harm. harm. Help, yeah. not harm. Um, they make up these logos for these things. Anyway, we we beat that back, and we also added to it on the House floor with an amendment and created a felony charge for someone that would mutilate a small child or, or actually a minor. A minor is considered anybody under 18. So we've got some teeth in that, and it's passed the House now. We'll send it to the Senate and hope they'll take it up. But you're right, it's not happening a lot, but I don't want it to happen at all. This is a hard question, Mike, but going back to the issue you guys have touched on, conservatives historically believed that government needs to be limited. Government needs to stay out of the business. Um, some Giuliani Republicans, what I used to refer to them as, maybe Trump Republicans now, stay out of the bedroom, but let's get the ballot sheet in order. Let's do a better job of spending taxpayer dollars. But but my understanding of what you guys are dealing with, you are involving yourself in the relationship of parent-child. You, you said something very interesting to me. you got to accept that people feel fundamentally different than you do. This is the weirdest question I could ask in regards to that. And I know all three of you, to be honest, brokers. So So when you become a part of that relationship. And you do, Jay, Philip. You know you are. I mean, in some weird way, the government is dabbling in that relationship between a minor child and a parent. Mike, how do you how do you address that parent that feels fundamentally different than you do? You know how passionately you feel about a minor not being allowed to have that sort of procedure performed, but you are taking that right away from a parent who may have a fundamentally different opinion than yours. Yeah. You touched on one of the, uh, I think, the most relevant challenges um, in my year and a half of, of being the state senator for District 31 is trying to walk that balancing beam of a limited government, small government, free market kind of person that I am and getting engaged in the parent-child relationship when I believe that a parent should choose to be involved and should choose to want the best for their child, but what is best quote unquote, is going to be defined by the family and what that role of government is. And I think that's the number one reason, even if I wasn't a man of faith before who knows I'm, I'm broken and needs salvation and grace and mercy, I've got to pray for wisdom, the kind of wisdom Solomon had. We all do. Every one of the 170 legislators and in every state, we've got to pray for wisdom because when you walk through that lobby and I don't take the, 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 the secret elevator, I walk through the lobby. I want to talk to people. When you've got people yelling at you that if my child needs transgender surgery, you'll be preventing them from being okay and they will kill themselves if they don't get that kind of surgery. Having that engagement and being able to communicate with them has to be steeped in prayer to say, you know, not only do I think you're wrong, I've got a responsibility as a legislator to protect your child because you can't go get a tattoo on your child under 13 just because you want to. You can't prostitute your child, even if the child says, you know what, I'd really like to make some extra money. I'm prepared to do this. You're not allowed to do that. Why would we allow a parent to say, I'm going to go ahead and let you change your gender because you're 14 and you feel this way? Jay, Mike said sometimes the beam's real narrow. Sometimes it's even there's no beam there. I mean, there is really, I mean, it's, just, it's a complicated place to find yourself in, but we're a nation of laws and we defer to lawmakers to make those decisions for us. So th that's absolutely right. You know, 
I default position is my default position is, you know, the parent is in charge of the raising, the education, the health care, all those things that go into raising a child. Um, but there comes times like this that I think Mike said it well, you have to the child has to be protected. Um, you know, give you two different examples I just talked about a minute ago. There's a social media bill that the, requires the parental consent up to a certain age that if the child wants to be on social media, the parent has to sign off. That's a parent decision. But when you're talking about irreversible gender surgery, you know, the, these are these are not the same thing. Uh, we're talking about a, a, a spectrum so far apart. Um, we're talking about unalterable, life-changing, forever surgery. And I'm not talking about, you know, you know, um, minor surgery. The, I don't. I can't think of a more serious surgery. So, yes, it's a, a an overarching theme to wrestle with. But then sometimes you just have to say this is too important. Philip, who pushes this envelope? I mean, who who drives this? I gotta believe it's very rare that a family finds themselves in that situation. But but politics becomes a, a force. I mean, it, it you know one pulls one way, one pulls another way. Who makes these issues such a big deal and makes you guys make these unbelievably complicated decisions? Well, you can look at the final vote and see. It was the Democrats. They pushed it. Behind the scenes, they'll say, man, this is really crazy, sick stuff. And then, But on their vote, they're scared to buck the party. And just pull up the vote. Take a look at it. I don't know, 25, 35 the Democrats were in favor of mutilation of a child, were in favor of having irreversible type procedures done and and blocking puberty type hormones and these things will ruin the child's ability to have reproductive sex. I mean, it just and maybe have no fun at sex the rest of their life because things are missing. I mean, it, it's a decision that we have to protect the innocent. No different. Than we have to protect the innocent about an abortion. Well, explain. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The delegation, all three are here with us. They were a bit tardy, but they brought uh, their A well, game all of them? and, on a and gave. Really, well, I know you're right. You're right. Where you were, I mean, I was raised where if you're not ten minutes early, you're late. So <laughs> technically, in my world, my you were you were a tad late. Um, one of the good things of being in the supermajority is you get to call most of the shots. <clears throat> one of the bad things in the supermajority is you get to call most of the shots, and there's dissent within at times. And I mean, Democrats have a perspective and, and I understand when, when you're, when you're in the minority, you're less likely to break ranks. I mean, is that fair when you're in the majority, especially where the Republican party is today, there is divisional tribal disputes within you guys know that you've experienced that the media reports on, on some of that rule changes. And I, I mean, where are we in regards to, to, um, some of the dissent within not just Democrats and Republicans, Jay, uh, but Republicans and and Republicans. So I think that's a good description. Um, you know, the Republican Party uh, in the House is is bigger than it's ever been, um, and it as a result of that, sometimes there's disagreements philosophically. More diverse than it's ever been. That that's probably fair. That's probably a fair statement. Um, and you know, South Carolina is a small state, but a Republican uh, who represents. Hilton Head probably has a little bit of a different of opinion on certain special social philosophically uh, driven issues, perhaps, as one in Pickens or Oconee or go up into the upstate. 
Um, so we have to work, we have to work through that. You know, one of the things I think a caller mentioned and Philip talked about earlier was the potential rules change that we've been discussing, um, with the idea being, you know, kind of saw a little bit of it this week where the Democrats will put up, um, you know, potentially could put up hundreds of amendments. I mean, we Dil- spent dilatory amendments. <laughs> we spent last year on the pro-life bill. I think we were there for two or three days because of the just hundreds of amendments. And these weren't amendments that were that I would classify as substantive that would require debate. These are like Philip was saying. Well, we're going to say the form has to be read on the if you fill out um, a request for this information being and, obstinate correct and then the 118th amendment now the form has to be blue and it, the underlying the only purpose of, of these hundreds of amendments is to delay and obstruct and slow the process down and hope that they can outlast you and people have to leave and have other things come up and they can somehow go from being the minority to being the majority or at least break the will of the majority um so after last year that during that debate it really became a discussion of do we want to modify things not to get rid of debate? That's not, I don't think, what the rules um, alteration represents, but to guarantee a certain amount of debate on the front end uh, where if you cannot invoke cloture um, for the first, I think, three hours. Um, but you, but that also, I will say this, that sort of preserves debate. You couldn't surprise anyone. The, the Republican Party couldn't get in a room and say, all right, guys, we got this bill coming up. The Democrats don't know what's coming up. We're going to sneak it in um, maybe through the motion period or something like that, which is a whole nother set of issues. And then we're going to invoke cloture and they won't really be able to talk about it. This guarantees everybody has three hours of debate before we even get on the amendment. So, you know, certainly what, what I would encourage people to do is don't take on face value any what anyone tells you. <laughs> Look into it yourself. Find the information. You know, I think some people put out information that says all they're doing, uh, you know, all the rule does is try and take away debate. Well, that's not that's not 100% accurate at all. Uh, on the other hand, don't take for granted, you know, read into it, look into it, talk to your representative and get more information about it. Philip, is it fair to say that some of the intent is to make certain members appear to be less conservative than they are? Well, it, it can be any reason you put an amendment up. But bottom line, putting 500 amendments up is meant to punish whoever's in the majority who brought this bill to the floor. That's all it really is. It's like to right. stop you from being able to pass that in timely fashion. No, it's, it's it's probably not even that. It's to prevent you from doing that kind of bill. We call it Wicked Wednesdays because we bring bills that are going to have a lot of debate and, and arguments on Wednesdays because we have a long day. And if you want to go, we'll go all night, whatever you want to do. But they want to punish you if you bring it to the floor. So you won't bring another one next Wednesday. They want to make it painful. If they, if you can come in and pass our bills, that the majority can pass their bills in two hours, then we'll throw anything we can across that desk. But if they make us hurt all night long, make us miss dinner, make us sit, then they try to, to prevent us from bringing them back. That's the, to not, the primary and, reason. And, and you would argue that the attempt is not to make the policy better? I mean, is that no. fair? Listen, if you had a bill and I said, go home tonight and think up 24 amendments that are substantive type (laughs) amendments and you bring them to the floor and you've got to stand there and convince people to vote for them. How many could you come up with on any given bill? Could you come up with 24 that you think really has a chance of passing? Of course not. Certainly a thousand and we've seen a thousand have have not ever been put on there to improve the bill. It's to punish 
the majority because they don't have enough power in the minority. And we've got some good folks in the minority too. I mean, we really are. We've got some PD Democrats that they got their head on straight and I, I hate to call names, but, but right here around Florence County, uh, we've got some good guys and they probably didn't vote for this silly mutilation bill that we fought off this week. Uh, but we appreciate them too. Cause a lot of times they're with us. Mike, the one thing I noticed in my time, the Senate's a little bit different. Now when you say month, one monkey can't stop the whole show, huh? they hadn't been to South Carolina Senate hmm. uh, that they could, I don't think they can now the way they once did. But but there is a difference in substantive debate and genuine legitimate amendments and trying to just muck up the process. Yeah, and in, in, I guess the the body of the Senate being smaller, there is ability for for senators um, to take a bigger stand. Perhaps There's only forty six of us compared to one hundred twenty four in the House. Um, but even within the Republicans, I mean, we have thirty of the forty six seats are Republican. Uh, we've currently got a, an issue going on, and I I do a lot more listening than than talking because there's a lot to learn here. Uh, we've talked before about judicial reform here and we're going through the judicial selection process. And here's a great example of how within the party, you can just have such kind of turmoil. Um, and I don't mind calling names because it's public record. There's one candidate who, again, I don't really know the guy. Um, he, he had run for governor against Henry McMaster. He was uh, the Democrat, James Smith. He's running for a judgeship. There were some Republicans who said this, this week, he's the, the least bad choice. He's a Democrat, um, but he's a smart guy. He's a good guy. He's the guy to go for. And we've got a couple of Republicans, to your point about one monkey stopping the show, who are saying they're going to grind this judicial selection to a halt if Republicans get behind him because he was endorsed by Planned Parenthood. They were passing around flyers that says he was endorsed by Planned Parenthood. He wants to reverse um, our abortion restrictions that we've had, some of our pro-life gains. How could a Republican select him and then we're going to look up in the years and say, well, how are, how are we as a conservative state not conservative is because we do things like that. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens is do a few Republicans take that stand and say, we will stop these judicial selections and until Republicans stand for those type of decisions. Jay, what is legitimacy to, to amendments? I mean, I mean I, when I presided and I keep going back to that when I presided, um, I mean, I, I realized when there was an honest effort to make a bill better, there was an honest disagreement between, you know, sometime within the party, sometime outside of the party. But but I also noticed many, 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 many times, like Philip is saying, it was just to thwart progress. It was to, to grind the system to a standstill and not allow the state to be governed effectively or efficiently. What is a good way to try to mend a bill from your perspective? Well, first of all, back up and understand that not every member of the House or the Senate was on that subcommittee that initially. That initially and, and I think you need to make that point. The bill is read across the desk. It goes to a subcommittee and a committee. It is vetted in that committee. The membership of that committee have already dealt extensively and exclusively with that bill. It gets to the floor. You're not on that committee. You're not as familiar with that bill as, as the committee members were. Sure. So if you look at the process, there are a lot of people that don't perhaps have a, a well, not, not perhaps, they don't have the opportunity to really know a lot about that bill. Um, so if it goes to the subcommittee, five or six, seven members on a subcommittee, they, they're they the ones that take public testimony, give the public an opportunity to come in and testify and, and present information. Um, it's just like almost a, a trial or a courtroom. You come in, I want to talk about this bill. Public has a right to do that, and we do that. Did that list past week on those two bills I referenced earlier. From there, from there, if a bill gets favorable report out of that subcommittee, um, it goes on to the full committee. 
public doesn't get a chance to talk there, but all the members of the full committee, 22, 24, 25 members, however many are on that particular committee, they get to ask questions and debate and discuss and put up amendments um, just like you could at the subcommittee if you're on the full committee to that piece of legislation. That may last 10 minutes, depending on the legislation. It might ask, last four or five hours. If it gets a favorable report from there, if it's voted out of there, it goes to the full body. Now, this is where the, you know many, many, many of the members are seeing the bill for the first time. This is their first opportunity, first the bill's first opportunity for every member to put a minimum, an amendment on that desk. And had one this week. I helped work on an amendment to this bill we were talking about just earlier. Um, when we're dealing with criminal penalties, that bill had gone through the 3M, the medical committee. As, as a lawyer, several lawyers were asked to address the criminal penalty of it. I don't know if you want the medical folks addressing criminal penalties. That's probably a better idea for the lawyers to look at that. So that's an example of when you can have some collaboration and the amendment process can work. And, and Philip, to your point, you're not opposed to amendments. I mean, you're not opposed to amending bills if they're not, you ready? If they're not dilatory, if they're substantive <laughs> in nature. Well, that's true. So one amendment could be talked about for 20 minutes times 124 people. Correct. What's a thousand? Can somebody get a calculator out? I mean, it's look, a long time. I, I'm a busy man and I don't have time to go to Columbia and listen to nothingness. It's got to be something. You know, a lot of ducks to kill. Well, I, I, I got my ducks killed and got here almost on time, almost. But it's it's important to do governance here. This this is all about governance. It's not about going up, making fun, making, trying to get on TV, getting little short quips and quotes, and 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 shining up there. It's about governing the people. It's a serious job, and you don't need a bunch of silly amendments. Let's talk about amendments that that are meaningful. And and listen. Making it a felony the other day, that was meaningful. There wasn't another amendment passed. Good, good amendments normally get serious consideration. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. I would call this the delegation hour, but it was actually about 45 minutes. All these cats were 15 minutes. Well, Rick and Bob Easy. was not late. <laughs> Saving dogs, killing ducks, and, <laughs> and being here on time. So, um, anyway. Anyway. But Philip still gets the gunslinger music, the right. bumper there. And how many right. of you Google dilatory? Tell the truth. How many of you out there Googled <laughs> Google dilatory? Um, let's leave the state house in the rear view. It's early. I mean, I understand you're probably at the beginning of the budget, and this will work itself out. But, Philip, it doesn't matter what you guys do. It's going to get the Senate stop. You know that. It's going to stop to a standstill. It'll be like a glacier moving at about one mile per, million, per million years. <laughs> I want to go to Iowa. And I want to get your take on this. I want you guys to put your pundit hat on for a second. Jay, I'll start with you. Um, I Donald Trump got 51% of the vote. The liberal media says, well, that means half don't want him to be the nominee. That's not the case. Is it inevitable? I mean, the math is the math. I mean, I'm looking at the poll now. Trump, uh, in the most recent Boston Globe poll, is over 50% in, in New Hampshire. We all kind of know where we're headed. But what do you make of it? I think you probably chose the right word, in, inevitable. The inevitability is is on the wall here. Um, for things to be shaken up, and again, I'm not an expert, qualify, put that right off the top there, um, but DeSantis had to make a better showing in Iowa than he did. To me, if you're not for President Trump, you got a worst-case scenario. you got more than 50%. I was, with a group, I was texting with a group on election, on Iowa Election Day or Caucus Day, and said if he gets – a drop less than 50%, they're going to make it. It's all going to be about Trump lost Iowa. Um, 
but he didn't. He got over the threshold, which I think was crucial. And then secondly, you didn't really see a clear winner there in second place. They were neck and neck, uh, DeSantis and Governor Haley. Uh, so I think that's sort of a worst-case scenario if you're against President Trump. Now you come to New Hampshire, and what needed to happen for Haley to, to make a move didn't happen, and that would be DeSantis saying, not my time, couldn't, you know, I'd put all my eggs into Iowa, invested heavily in Iowa, couldn't make it work in Iowa, couldn't get over 20-something percent. Uh, and so now you're kind of, Haley doesn't have that extra year there to try and get DeSantis people to make a real run um, at President Trump. So that sort of sequence of events and the fact that both of those individuals, Governor uh, DeSantis was in Columbia. He stopped by the state house earlier this week. Um, he seems like a guy who's not planning on, you know, I don't know why you'd come to South Carolina uh, ahead of New Hampshire if you weren't planning on coming to South Carolina after New Hampshire. So we'll see. Philip? It would seem like Trump's got it unless there's some way some judicial decision changes that. And if I were either one of the other two, I'd limp along and try to stay on the ballots uh, as far as I could, just in case something happened. But, I mean, I think it's Trump's completely. I don't, I don't see. You served path. in the House with Nikki. What do you make of Trump winning South Carolina and Nikki's, you know, she's a former governor, former legislator. What, what do you make of, of Trump potentially winning her home state by an excess of 20 points? Yeah, that would hurt my feelings if I had been <laughs> governor. Uh, I, I would say that. But that's where we're headed. It is. I mean, that's the, the, the big thing going. I think Nevada, now she's not even on the ballot She's on there. the primary ballot. He's on the caucus ballot in Nevada. He's the only one that can get Correct. Uh, delegates. actually a delegation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, th I think she'll be closer to Trump in New Hampshire. They're probably more moderate you know, Republicans up there. And. But, I, but, you know, if DeSantis got out, 80%, 90% of his voters are going back to Trump. They're not going to Nikki, I don't think. So, I, you know, Nikki needs a one-on-one -on -one as quick as she can get to it. And by DeSantis coming to Columbia, well, maybe she's not going to get that one-on-one -on -one here. Mike, there's a lot of crosswinds in politics, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and you don't know, and I don't know, and Philip and J.J. admitted he doesn't know. I mean, all this is, is speculation. It ain't speculative to say that America first – is the most powerful force in the Republican Party today. What, what do you make of Trump dominating the way he did in Iowa, probably wins New Hampshire, and, and even comes to the, the state of a former and recently elected governor and wins in such overwhelming fashion? Yeah, This is President Trump's time, and I think it's undeniable it's his time. Um, doesn't matter if the governor of Iowa endorses somebody else. It doesn't matter if the governor of New Hampshire endorses somebody else. It doesn't matter who endorses who. This is President Trump's time, and the liberal media is ridiculous. He could have gotten 60% in Iowa, and they'd have said, like, 40% of the people don't want him. Uh, that's an indictment of his presidency. It's ridiculous. Uh, what I'd like to think happens is that Haley and DeSantis say, look, it's Trump's time. Let's not be ridiculous and spend these dollars. Let's let people use the dollars to give to their church, give to a charity, put in their families, invest, save, do something and waste instead of wasting it on additional ads that are, as my parents used to say, spitting in the wind. There's no value in it. So keep your powder dry until 2028. It'll be here pretty quick. And then it's an open field. Tim Scott said he wants to run. It'll be Nikki. It'll be DeSantis. It'll be a crowded field. This is Trump's time. We've got to consolidate resources and figure out a way to beat Biden when a system, a media, 
an entire generation right now seems to be leaning toward Biden. We've got to figure out a way to beat his failed policies. Uh, I want to piggyback on that, Jay. I want to give that you got about three or four minutes here. Mike hit on something about consolidation, circling the wagons. Every one of you have voters in your district that have convinced themselves that under no circumstance will they vote for Donald Trump. They're never Trump Republicans. They're your voter. They're your voter. They're your voter. They're not voting for Trump. How do you convince a Jay Jordan voter who says, I'll never vote for Donald Trump to cast a ballot in his favor? I think I would lean into um, perhaps almost solely the, the Biden record. You know, the things that have occurred, you know, the old Reagan, are you better off now than you were years ago? Um, and, I, and I think you can make a really good argument, but for COVID, and I, I think if we're honest, I think President Trump would say nobody got everything right during that time period. Um, but but for that, this country was on a, a fast track of economic development and growth and, you know, checking all the, the boxes that we want to see for a healthy economy. So I, I think I'd work on those two things. And again, I've said this many times. I've said it here on this show. I don't like the way President Trump presents everything. I wish he wouldn't tweet some of the things he tweets. I wish he wouldn't say some of the things he says. But I'm not willing to let my ego in that respect my opinion in that respect, getting the way of the bigger picture and what's best for this country. Philip? I still don't think Trump and Biden will face each other. But if that's the case, I don't see how you could possibly vote for Biden. I mean, you just look at where we're at after three years with him and where your pocketbook and your wallet is, where the world stage is, the wars that are going on, the people that are spitting in our face right now across the the world. Look at the the border. I just don't see how people could make that decision, but I guess they did it last time and they could do it again, but I sure hope not. Mike, what I hope people focus on is what's usually most important to the majority of Americans, their families. And if you ask them this one salient question, do you feel your family is better protected under President Trump or under Joe Biden's policies? I think the majority, even the never-Trumpers, would have to step back and if they were honest with themselves, say, you know what, my family is better protected under President Trump's policies in the country we live in now. Last round of question. This is not specific. I aggravated Jordan Saturday a little bit. I was in a tizzy, and I called him, and I didn't bother you guys, but what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? Jay knows how I get sometimes. Um, we're in the beginning of an NIL bill. You guys can say, hey, it's not my job. we got education and transgenderism and the the relationship between the parent and child. I get that. That's that's important. But we're in South Carolina, and football matters, and people want clarity on what can or cannot be done. Are we confident that you guys will at least have a chance to address NIL in South Carolina? I think so. I think you probably are going to see not one but multiple pieces of legislation. And then going back to what we talked about earlier, I think you'll see amendments because, you know, while it's a small, while it's a, a small state, uh, it's a big state, and there are a lot of truly dedicated Carolina Clemson fans in this state. And they're in that chambers, those chambers as well. So I think you'll absolutely see uh, attention and light given to the issue and, and robust discussion. Well, I had a long talk with the president of, of the university of South Carolina and he's for it. And he sat down, they hammered out agreement that Clemson's with it. So we've got something, a good starter. And I, we, we could amend anything 
So I'm going to put the Ken Ard Amendment up when you get that one ready. I've got it, I've got it ready. You just let me know when. You've already given me the green light. You just let me know. And don't make you it let dilatory. me know when. I mean, <laughs> right? Mike, you and I have had this debate. Conservatives don't like to meddle in the affairs of things we don't think we belong. But, I mean, there, there needs to be clarity here. And it does matter to people. I mean, everybody's not a football fan, but those that are are pretty passionate about it. Yeah. I think from the constituents I've talked to, even the most ardent football fans, college football fans, um, They'd love to see Carolina and Clemson be more competitive at a national level, but don't affect my pocketbook. No tax increases. You want to clarify things and make it easier for our teams to be competitive, great, but not at the expense of a tax increase. And that's the amendment I'm talking about, the amendment that allows the universities to fund these collectives. The problem that you guys would have if you start paying college football players with taxpayer dollars, if they become employees of the university, collective bargaining, overtime pay, I mean, Jay's a lawyer. He understands. I mean, you would have more, as my father used to say, more hell on your hands than you can imagine if you go that route. Hey, thanks to the three of you. Despite being 20 minutes late, they were here. Uh, They gave it their best effort. We'll be back in a few. Hour of the week, 843-661-0937. There are not many things that I regret not being alive or not being able to attend. That's one thing. I mean, I would have loved to have been at Woodstock. Except when you were about, what, three or four years old. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously <laughs> not old enough to smoke weed, get neck and dance on cars. But, I mean, that would have been, you know, I don't know, three years old. Who's looking? You know, who's taking? Okay, Josh, what is your understanding of Woodstock? Some big party. With music and debauchery, that's about all I know. <laughs> that's interesting. That's such a good choice of word. Debauchery. Um, uh, uh, kind of a hippie revolution. Bunch of hippies. There's a bunch of hippies. I mean, you, you wouldn't be as familiar with the hippie culture as, as we would. Reefer Madness and, you know, um, it's kind of a day. Um, I mean, I've said this about America Firsters. We are the counterculturalist in the political world today. We are a little bit like the Woodstockers. Um, they didn't like the way things were. I'm not sure they knew why they didn't like the way things were. 
it was just cool to not like things the way they were, to be a counterculturalist. Um, I just, I would love to sit around a fire. I mean, I like to tell stories. I like to listen to stories. I like to shoot the breeze, um, so to speak, and, and sitting around a fire with a drink in your hand, having a tailgate with a beer in your hand or a mixed drink in your hand and talking about, hey, you remember the time when, or, or don't you remember uh, this? And, uh, you know, I love that. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and you'd be given the opportunity to embellish the stories oh, and even make God. up some stories. I mean, all the naked women loved me. And, you, you know, <laughs> you know what I, I mean, I didn't do any drugs. <laughs> Everybody else was doing the drugs. And uh, anyway, yeah, I would love to try. And, I mean, I just think it would be a lot of fun to sip out of your beer and say, let me tell you all what Woodstock was about. I was there. Because remember the scene in Bull Durham? It is Bull Durham when 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 they're on the when Crash and all of them, all the prospects. The older guy is on the bus and he says, "I was in the show once, and everything stopped." I mean, what do you mean? Because everybody's on a bus going to a minor league city to play baseball for pennies, and they all dream about going to the majors. The show is what they refer to it as, and the the older catcher, I can't think of his name, but he said, "I was once in the show." And everybody stopped and everybody turned their radio, took their headset on. You were in the show. I mean, imagine I was at Woodstock. I mean, if you know as well as I do that if we were sitting around a fire and somebody dropped that line, I was at Woodstock, your, your attention would oh, yeah. obviously, you'd say, tell me about it. You were seriously. I mean, it would be like, I was in the show once. Oh my God. You were T- tell me about it. Cause he talked about press laundry. You know, they, they wash your clothes. Your uniform is pressed and steamed, hanging in the locker room. No more worn-out cleats. You don't carry your own bag. You don't do, and everybody's like, just like, oh, I, can't, I can't believe that. Yeah, I mean, if, if somebody, might, it wouldn't be as much for you, Josh, but if somebody mine in Rev's age were sitting around a fire at a tailgate and somebody all of a sudden said, with credibility, I was at Woodstock, let me tell you what it was about. Shoot, we'd turn everything down to zero. And we would have, we would be almost infatuated. It was a a moment in American history that had so much to do with where we are today. I mean, it's, it, it, to me, Woodstock's a little bit like the moon landing. I mean, I, I don't know how they did it. I don't know. You know, I mean, you've seen documentaries about it. I've seen documentaries about it. Um, I'm not saying it was good for the country, but, but it, was, it was kind of a statement of where we were. And um, America was changing in a very revolutionary sort of way. And that was kind of the beginning. I mean, that, that was the, I, I'm bad about saying this word, the manifestation of this counterculturalism. And but it's kind of mystical when you look back on it now. You know, you've heard the stories and you see, I mean, there's videos and pictures and everything, but it is kind of a mystical. Thing. It is. And it's almost like they make it up. Josh, they expected about 40,000 people to attend. I mean, imagine planning, a, a, you know, a music festival with 40,000 people and a half million show up. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, imagine 10 times as many people showing up and then it rains and it's in this field, you know what I mean? And everything's just crazy. And some of the biggest entertainers and these guys that put it on weren't promoters. <laughs> and they're trying to get the money together. Yeah, to they're, pay they're, the, they're going to the concession stands where they're selling beer and taking money out of the drawer to pay these it, performers. They're winging it like crazy. Because the performers hear that, hey, the last two acts hadn't got paid yet. And Dylan says, I ain't going on that stage until I get paid because Dylan's kind of, a, I mean, he's an established voice. You know what I mean? He's a, at the time, he would have been a rock and roll star. So, so they run to the, um, they send about eight or 10 revolutionaries 
to the beer stands to get the money so they can pay these entertainers. One kid, one young guy was associated with the promoters for what they were. His father had established a trust fund. He had the ability to access some money, but, but he, I mean, his dad had to set up where you can't do it, but a certain way in a certain way, but he was a bit friendly with someone at the bank and he convinced that somebody at the bank to let him access some of the, um, some of the trust fund money. And you know what he did? He said, Hey, we're, we got money coming in. I'll pay it back. I mean, no, no, just don't tell dad I'll pay it back. And they used money out of some young person's trust fund that was set aside for retirement to help fund Woodstock. And you're right, Rev. Some of those stories probably get embellished to the nth degree. But I can tell you this. If I went to Woodstock, I'd embellish every damn story you could tell. I mean, there's no way I would tell the story as it was. I mean, I think you owe Woodstock uh, an embellishment. And it's it's kind of um, my, my adoration for Woodstock convinces me that despite being raised in a small town by you know, kind of um, Christian parents, <laughs> in my heart, I'm somewhat of a revolutionary. In my heart, I'm like, I want to be on that team. I don't want to be on this boring team. I don't want to sit in second row pew behind Miss Smith. You know what I mean? And sing holy, holy, holy. And then, you know, leave at 12, uh, 1157 because the restaurant opens. It. <laughs> I don't want any part of that. I want to go over there. That seems like a lot more, a lot more fun. Let's go to the phone. Dina in Lana. Good morning. Hey, guys, I just have uh, two questions. Um, they keep talking about Social Security needs to be changed as far as raising the, the ceiling and all that. But how come nobody ever checks the welfare or the SNAP or even the disability, uh, the eligibility of people that go to that? I personally know people that moved down to South Carolina at the age of 50 and his wife was 40. And they moved here with the goal of not ever working again. And after several disability claim uh uh, court cases and all that she kept going into the court with a neck brace and a leg brace and all this and they finally got the money they haven't worked in 11 years they are basically wards of the state as far as like the welfare system i know somebody else that has nine kids just keeps pumping them out but yet her and her husband then the state doesn't know that the husband lives with her they recently bought a seventy thousand dollar vehicle and purchased the house all within one month of each other so nobody's there uh, investigating to see if these people are even eligible to do that. And I think that's where we need to see if we can get some money back also. And then my other question is, um, it's clear to me that Biden is paying back favors to these countries for helping his son. So if Nikki Haley is getting all this money from the Democrats, wouldn't she be indebted to the Democrats also down the line if she were to win? Thank so- you, Dean. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, the, the, the notion of welfare and are you entitled to disability? Are you entitled to welfare? Should it be means-tested, non-means-tested? I think that's a more moral and ethical issue than it is than Social Security or Medicare is. I'm not questioning the morality or ethics of Social Security or Medicare. I understand why the government decided to fund programs that would eventually entitle certain people to a retirement benefit and health care. I get that. I mean, I understand. That's moral. That's ethical. Um, I think it would have been more moral and ethical if we'd modeled it to pay for it in real time. But, I mean, that, you know, that's the, 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 the issue with what Dean is talking about. It's more morality and ethics. It's more, I mean, I got on a rant this morning about the intrinsic value of work. 
I think that the human condition at some point in time in its life decided not to work if it doesn't want to. I'm not saying everybody, but I think there's, I mean, Charlie Munger died in his office. Warren Buffett will probably die in his office. I hope one day I die in my office. I hope it's a long time from now. I mean, I hope I croak one day with my boots on. I don't have any interest in stopping work because I believe that work adds value to life, and I believe that work makes you a better person. That's the intrinsic value of work. To not work and allow, well, I mean, I'll say this, Rip. To not work and allow taxpayers who do to subsidize your living is immoral. It's unethical. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not very expensive. What do you mean it's not expensive? It's billions of dollars. Yeah, but I mean, we're talking about trillion. Medicare is a trillion-dollar line item. Social Security is a trillion-dollar line item. They collect money to fund, to some degree, to some percentage, Medicare and Social Security. And I don't believe when we talk about the fundamental problem with Medicare or Social Security, we're talking about, you know, let's let's abolish, let's do away with. Um, I understand why the country decided at some point in time in its existence that the moral and ethical thing to do is make sure old people don't live in the streets and, and die because they couldn't get health care. That, that, that breaches some of this personal responsibility, but it does. You, you could argue, and a libertarian would, Josh, that it's your responsibility to prepare for being 80 one day. I mean, you know, you've got 80 years. You've got to work life from, let's say, 20 to, to, to 70 to prepare for life at 80. You're right. I mean, if we lived in the most moral and ethical, if we were Vulcans, that's the way it would roll. Josh would be expected to prepare for a day he can't work and a day he can't provide adequate health care. Rev, Kent, we'd all do that. But we know that's not the human condition. We know that we're not Vulcans. We are emotional. We make good decisions. We make bad decisions. We make a series of good decisions. We make a series of bad decisions. The reason that I think the focus is so much on Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid is the cost is so enormous. There is no doubt that if you had a moral, ethical debate about disability and welfare juxtaposed to health care for elders and some retirement benefit for elders, I mean, we know what's less or more moral, right? I mean, I don't think anybody questions. I think we question the legitimacy of the model. So we, we, we built a system that was predicated on people dying at 69. Now people are living 10 years longer. And we've made about 10% of an adjustment, maybe 15% of an adjustment. How do we not expect that to bite us in the rear end at some point in time? That's the immoral part of this. I mean, the, the idea, the concept of Social Security, we can argue. I mean, the libertarian would say, hey, I mean, that's not the government's job. The, the, the pragmatic would say, well, I mean, it's not the government's job, but we can't have people dying in the street. Reagan increased funding of Medicaid. Reagan was a pretty conservative dude. You know what he said? America doesn't have the stomach to watch people die in the street. And when people get a certain age, can't make money, can't provide health care, we're not going to throw them to the curb. I mean, that's, that's inhumane. The, the true libertarian, if, if the government was artificially, if the government was artificial intelligence, old people would die in the street. Old people would be hungry. Those who didn't prepare would be broke and, and you know, um, they would just be helpless. But, but what we decided as human beings that we have somewhat of a moral obligation to our fellow human beings and will tolerate 
uh, a little of that. I mean, in other words, libertarians say, I don't like it, man. I don't think that's the way it should be. But I don't want to watch my fellow Americans die in the street. I don't want to watch my fellow Americans go hungry. So, and I understand, well, I mean, government, uh, charity, and charity, and charity, and charity, and charity, and the church, and the church. Maybe, you don't need to be critical of churches, maybe the reason government has had to do some of the things they've had to do is the church denied its responsibility. Uh, but the church, to me, is not only a conduit to your spirituality, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, an entity to make the world a better place. I've often wondered, I don't want to pick on people, but I've often wondered some of these insanely ornate cathedrals. And I'm talking about the, I mean, it, the, it blows my mind when, when I see this church or that. I'm like, wow. And there are none around here. I'm talking about in some of these other places, some of these cathedrals. And I mean, I'm like, wow, what did that cost? How many meals could you have prepared if you built a, a $10 million building instead of a $375 million building? Uh, I'm not being judgmental, but I think the church plugged a lot of gaps. In, in American history. And the church has decided to kind of, I don't know, I'll say this, commercialize itself. And the business of religion has kind of usurped uh, or, or prioritized, become a priority over, you know, charity and taking care of people. I'm not saying churches don't do good. I mean, I know people that are like, oh, he said churches suck. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. But, but w- w- defend a church building a $450 million sanctuary. I mean, it's happened. I mean, you know that. I know that. And um, but but Dean, the debate that I have, and, and I'm with you. I mean, I think it's egregious. I think it's disgusting that so many people live off the government and don't produce anything of value to the economy, and they're able to go to sleep at night. I mean, I understand if you're genuinely disabled, if you've got some challenge, fiscal or mental. I get that. I mean, th- there are examples that I think government needs to help people. But, but we've allowed, and I said this, uh, the safety net to become a safety hammock. And, and people get lazy and they don't take care of themselves and they depend on the government. And we got generational welfare. I mean, we know that. We got generational welfare. We've got kids being born into families that are born with an expectation that they don't really have to take care of themselves because government will. That's what Dina finds so disgusting. It is disgusting. But the amount of money we spend there is nowhere near the amount of money we spend on Medicare and Social Security. So, yes, I am much bothered, much more bothered by people fleecing the system, gaming taxpayer dollars. But if we addressed all of that, we still got a financial situation that is unsustainable. And the only way to address whether or not we can pay our bills for the next 50 years is what do we do with Medicare? What do we do with Social Security? Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Now, when when a, when a when a caller calls, we put them as the priority, and they change the direction of the show. <laughs> so when um when Dina called, we kind of left what we were going to. T- we played the wait. There not was a reason. To talk twenty minutes about Woodstock <laughs> and how much Rev and I would lie about what happened if we had been there. If Rev and I'd been there, we would have been the stars. Forget John Fogarty and Bob Dylan, Jimi right. Hendrix, Ain't Jack. I mean, it would have been the Rev and I, a bunch of naked women. Um, <laughs> That would have been the story. Drunk and high naked. Years women. later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and the reason I played that song, it's Take a Load Off Fanny. And Fanny Willis is making headlines. Um, just not for the reason that I think Fanny Willis thought she may be making headlines. Someone asked me yesterday, what is wrong 
with the prosecutor having a relationship in the middle of a trial if, if it's still legitimate? I mean, if there's still a charge here. That's a fair question. I mean, Fannie Willis can sleep with who she chooses to sleep with. Fannie Willis can be married and sleep with who she chooses to sleep with. She may have an open relationship. She may not have a relationship. Old Bo might not mind, or old Bo might be irate when he finds out (laughs) that something may or may not have happened. Here's the legal problem that Fannie Willis may have. She is a federal prosecutor. She works for the taxpayer. The taxpayer budgets X number of dollars to go after Donald Trump in one of the most political litigation episodes in American history. Anyway, that's why she has trouble. Fannie Willis can sleep with who she chooses to. She can sleep with how many she chooses to. Oboe can like it or not. They work that out like everybody else does. Um, Divorce courts are full in America every single day. Marriage counselors stay pretty busy every single day. Nobody cares what Fannie may or may not have done in the privacy of her own home or somebody else's home. The problem is Fannie was given a budget, and she's reimbursed, and that's taxpayer dollars. And if Fannie hires somebody she's having a romantic affair with and that somebody gets a big check for somewhere in the neighborhood of $6,000, there's a legitimate argument to be made that Fannie self-advantaged. She took advantage of being a political appointee. She took advantage of being involved in a, in a litiga- high-profile litigation in which she was able to go out and hire three different lawyers. Here's the interesting part about Fannie. Fanny has never said she didn't do it. She said he was black, and that's why they're after me. You know, I hired two white prosecutors. Nobody said anything. I mean, Fanny didn't begin her press conference when saying, I deny all the rumors. I deny the allegations. I love my husband. I don't sleep around on my husband. She didn't say that. Fanny said they're going after this guy because he's a black man and they don't like black men in positions like that. Kind of a lame argument, but it's part of the one I would make. I mean, it flies in America today. Half the country buys into that nonsense, so it's part of the argument I'd make. The problem Fannie has legally is that Fannie has been paid enormous amounts of money with taxpayer dollars. She decided to hire someone that she's allegedly, and I want to be careful here, she's allegedly having an affair with, and she paid him out of that budget somewhere in the neighborhood of $6,000. Here's the question Six, I would 600, ask. 600000 600, Here's the question I'd ask. Did he give her any of that money back? Now, that's good old boyism. I mean, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not one of the sorts you need in a courtroom. But I know how to look under rocks about as good as anybody. And I, the first question I'd want to know is when, when, when old Bo, when other old Bo got, um, got $600,000, did he put it in his bank account and then write her a check for $100,000, $200,000? I don't know. Don't know the answer to that. But, but I think it's worthy of the reason that I think this is interesting. If Fanny ain't having an affair, Fanny's going to tell us she ain't having an affair. I mean, that, that would be the first thing. I mean, I, I, I dispute these claims. I'm, 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 I'm so upset that I'm being accused of these things. She didn't do that. She didn't say, I'm not sleeping with the man. She said, the reason they're targeting the man is because he's black. We know he got paid 600000 We know Fannie was in charge 
of that disbursement. Where did the money go after it went to the man? Now, now forget the fact that he's not real experienced in this field of law and this RICO law and high-profile cases. I mean, he may be the best lawyer the man has ever seen, or he may be the dude sleeping with a woman who got access to all the money. That's kind of what we'll find out February, uh, I think it's February 15th, February 13th. I mean, there's a hearing scheduled. It'll be interesting to watch this play itself out. But Fannie is not in trouble because she's having an extramarital affair. Newsflash, people do that. Fannie's having trouble because she may be having an extramarital affair with somebody who got $600,000 of taxpayer dollars that she was in charge of, and people probably want to know where the money went after it went, after it hit uh, his bank account. Let's take a call. David in the PD, good morning. Yeah, they're Wavy Gravy and Jimi Hendrix. Uh, let's get back to the naked women and the rock music there. That's kind of what I was calling in on. But, uh, yeah, I believe you were work and the hospitality business. I think you've talked about the importance of work and the hospitality business. And I think me and you from small town south, we were raised to be respectful. So as far as hospitality, it's very simple for me to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, thank you very much. I'll open the door for him. Welcome. How you doing there? Uh, I even, you know, somebody like Dave Baker, he's from the Midwest. We call it common courtesy. Dave's a nice guy. He's very well-mannered. Uh, Josh, he's a younger guy. I feel like he's very well-mannered. He's from Charlotte. Now, they're less southern than he used to be. But we have some basics about the hospitality business. And what's unique here off of I-95, we contrast with some people that uh, I've never heard of a show called Northern Charm, never heard of Northern Hospitality. So we've got some customer base that's eh, somewhat spoiled. They're sort of entitled. They're demanding. But you can work with them. You can, you can work with them. But I think what really hit the hospitality business is that people can't leave those devices at home to have to always be Skyping, Bluetoothing, Facebooking, tweeting, whatever, and they can't devote themselves to a customer because they're devoting themselves to somebody that's on the other end of that Skype, the other end of that Bluetooth. And to me, that's distracting just myself as being a customer sometimes. And then you get people that have control of personalities, paranoid personalities, and that, to me, is one of the most difficult things these days, especially for some of our younger folks, is they cannot leave that device, the Bluetooth, the Skype. They can't leave it at home. You'll have a good weekend. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. I mean, Southern hospitality, Josh kind of nodded his head when David said Charlotte is not as Southern as it once was. I mean, I think we know that. I mean, you know, the South has become very diverse. That's kind of our word today. It's not very multicultural, but it's diverse. I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of people moving um, but down south, we have lived, and I don't think we've been as aware until now as we probably should have been. There has been a mass migration of people from other parts of the country to the south, Midwest, Northeast in particular. I argue that one of the reasons the SEC kind of became the creme de la creme, in my youth, it would have been the Big Ten and then the SEC. You had all the industrial base, you had all the population centers. And all of a sudden, you know, some of the trade policies of the federal government lead to lack of opportunities, employment opportunities in the Midwest, and people have to leave. I mean, they have to find better jobs and, and, and a more affordable life, and they begin kind of moving down, down south, and somebody moves from Michigan, 
and they you know, tell their brother-in-law about it, and yeah, no way you get a house that like that for that price. Yeah, you can. Uh, yeah, you don't make as much money, but the opportunities are better. Weather's better. Um, they're nicer. Uh, <laughs> they say, hey, y'all. They say, thank you, ma'am. Um, sweet tea. Yeah, sweet tea and, you know, grits. And uh, a lot of things are different down south. But anyway, I just believe that we have lived, or I have at my age, I have lived the majority of the mass migration from the Midwest, some of the Northeast, but in particular, the Midwest. I mean, if you look at some of the, the population centers of the Midwest back in the 60s and 70s, they were huge. Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit. I mean, they, they, they were enormous American cities, and some of the suburbs were densely populated. That's, I mean, when they closed the factories and the industry leaves, and I mean, the deindustrialization of the Midwest has led to rampant growth in the, uh, in the Southeast. That's not talking about the retirees. I mean, obviously, you got a lot of weather chasers is what I like to refer to those people have. Uh, as, but, um, but no people go where there are opportunities to make a living and the South has provided more opportunities. There's a, there's a, a, I read an article a while back. Somebody's trying to predict the day that Nashville becomes a bigger city than Chicago. I didn't say Detroit. I mean, Detroit's had its issues. We know that Chicago's been, I mean, it's crime ridden, but it's, it's very economically centric. I mean, Chicago is still a major, major American media market, uh, business market, <coughs> political market, but there's kind of a bet between some of these demographic researchers about when in the future does Nashville become a bigger city mm-hmm. than than Chicago. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone, and then we'll take a break. Sam and Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. You're on. Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah, you're right about Charlotte, I believe. And, of course, if you noticed yesterday, I believe it was, uh, Joe was down in Raleigh, North Carolina, trying to reassure his base there in North Carolina that all is well uh, with the economy. And um, speaking of Fannie, I believe what I've heard, uh, Ken, in the in the news reports is that uh, some of that money may pay for some nice cruises that those two took. But uh, what I'm really calling you about is you went back to the Woodstock era and uh, – uh, I certainly didn't go, but I was alive at that particular point in time. But you guys still have an opportunity to experience some of that debauchery, I think, as Josh called it right now. And what you and Dave and and um, Josh and maybe some of your buddies ought to do is plan to uh, rent you a big old RV and y'all go out to the Burning Man Festival that they have. And uh, I think you might experience a little bit of the Woodstock uh, era and a lot of <laughs> a lot of some of the people that were probably at Woodstock <laughs> show up for that thing. So I could I, I would love to for you guys to do some research on that and come back and give us a report. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. <laughs> probably fall asleep halfway through the thing as quick as I bed down now. Um, it, it, Woodstock is just an iconic event in American history. I mean, it's a defining moment in our in our history. I'll say this, and then we'll take our break. Josh got the music playing. There's not much that excites me in life anymore. I mean, that's sad. There's just not. I mean, I've seen a lot, done a lot, been aware. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, we're going such and such. Okay. I mean, it'll be fun. But but youth, you get excited. You look forward. You anticipate. We're going here. We're going there. We're going over there. I, I, don't, I don't have much of that anymore. The one thing I am incredibly passionate about and inspired by is fighting on behalf of America first. I mean, I, I mean that. That's kind of sort of my Woodstock today. I love getting up in the morning and fighting the good fight on behalf of America First because I do believe 
It is in some way, shape, or form identifiable as a revolutionary political moment. And some of my heroes, uh, the Jeffersons of the world, I mean, they've, they've been revolutionaries. And it's fun to be alive and in the middle of revolutionary moments in American history. Take a break. Back in a few. A little Badlands bumper to, to kind of usher us out of the door on a Friday morning. Mm-hmm. Got time for a call and our trivia. Hey, Jeff in Florence. Hi, Jeff. You're on. Good morning, guys. Um, a couple things. I, you did a smart thing. You prefaced allegedly in your statements before you uh, talked about Fannie Willis's personal life. Uh, that's that's pretty pretty good uh, uh, cover there. Um, let me ask you. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. No. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to accuse the lady. I mean, I don't know what she's right. done or not done. But I know this: if I was being accused of having an affair with a guy I hired and gave money to public funds, I would deny it if I didn't do it. I know that. That would be the first thing out of my mouth. I did not do that. She's yet to say that. She said they're attacking them because they're black. Two, two things about that: you give oxygen to that fire. Now, do you know if she has children? I don't have any idea. But if she did, do you think it'd be like a, a decision that she would weigh about whether to even address it? I can't speak for that. I mean, I have no idea what 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 right. calls her to so react that's or a good not. Answer, right? So you know, to to say you get up there, you probably you might, but you don't know her. And what her situation? I, I don't think I've accused right. her of that. I mean, I, I just I, no, I, you if, haven't. If you I know, was being haven't. accused, if someone were alleging that I had done that, I would, on day one, out of the blocks, deny it. She's not done that. She has every right to not do uh, that. But but I would do it the other way. But to not do it because you do it that way is that an admission? No, I mean that, that that's an accepting of. There's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Right. And and so you know it's not it's, she's not guilty because she didn't come out and deny it. Correct. Okay. And then the other thing is maybe she's just waiting for somebody to step in the bear trap like Rudy Giuliani did with uh, those two poll workers. Maybe. Maybe. You know. But there I mean, there like, may there may be a great answer to this. I mean, she may not have slept with the guy that ended up giving six six hundred thousand got hired as part of the team got paid in excess of six hundred thousand dollars. That she may have great answers to that, and time will tell. I think the Congress is going to investigate uh, where the money went and if she's having an affair or not. I have no doubt they will. I have no doubt they will. What are you saying they shouldn't? I'm just saying at the end of the day, have anything to do with whether or not the allegations against him? Well, I mean, we'll find that out in the courtroom. But but I am deeply I am deeply concerned that a lady has taken on the responsibility of prosecuting a former president and sleeping with someone that she hired and is paying 600,000 taxpayer dollars. And we don't know where that money's going. Of course, I think we've got to be a moron if we're not interested in that paper trail. Do you realize that's not us money, right? What do you say? taxpayer dollars in the state of Georgia? Well, it's still taxpayer dollars. In the state, in the state of Georgia, it's she still. Paid, I mean, is it not taxpayer dollars? No, answer the question. Is it taxpayer dollars it, or not? It is not okay. U.S. taxpayer dollars. It is taxpayer dollars. Not U.S. taxpayer. That's an dollars. absurd argument. You're, you're, it sounds foolish. Oh come on, <laughs> you 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 really don't see the distinction? Of course I don't. Right? It's taxpayer <laughs> dollars. Okay. 
Okay, so all taxpayer dollars are uh, you don't see a distinction? No, I'm just just tell me I'm wrong. I'm waiting on to. I said it's tax. I didn't say it's federal government dollars. I said it's taxpayer dollars. No, no, your your arguments are lame because there's no argument. You think you think she did it. You think she slept with the man. You think the man got money. You think they went on cruises, and you're setting the table for cover. It doesn't matter to me. It has nothing to do with what her job is. Do you <laughs> okay. see that? No, not at all. I mean, like, <laughs> so, wow. So let me let me get this straight, Jeff. Donald Jeff, Trump can, can I say this and then and then I'll hush? <laughs> Everything that comes out of your mouth reeks of Trump derangement syndrome. It, it is it is unbelievable how a smart person, an informed person, can be so moronic. When he goes down the road of Donald Trump, I mean, it is the it is the classic example of someone. And, and I'm giving you a compliment. You are a smart man. You are an informed man. Except when it comes to Donald Trump, the 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 I don't know. We all have a secret moron in us, and yours rears its head when you start talking about Donald Trump and anything pertaining to Donald Trump. Okay. It, it, can I can I say a couple things? Sure, you can. Five minutes ago, you got. lay your party's feet at is a northerner the white privilege like he's 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 the elite he is the ivy league school educated he's everything you hate how do you know what i hate he cheated on his wife how do you know what i hate the arrogance of someone to say they know what another person hates you you can deflect but I'm not deflecting, Jeff. You really are. No, I'm not at all. You just said that you know what we hate in people. That's so judgmental and arrogant. All right. So, but but I've got derangement syndrome, right? Well, I think you do with Trump. I think you're a smart guy. I think you are a smart guy, and I love the conversations we have when we're not talking about Trump. But when we're talking about Trump, there's a switch somewhere. And about 60 million Americans that they just, they turn into something else. I thought Joe Biden got a million votes. 80. Uh, 81, they say. They say 81. (laughs) 81. So uh, only 60 of us are afflicted with it. (laughs) But hey, you guys have a good weekend. Fair enough. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. I just, I mean, you, you hear that. Jeff can call, and Jeff is a smart man, and Jeff is an informed man. But when you start talking about Trump, and he's, he's got some left-to-center ideas, but that doesn't mean he's a, I mean, that, that, there's a lot of smart people who believe in the liberal principles of government. I mean, I accept, and, 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 and we'll debate that, I mean, in a very respectful way. But something happens to some of these people when Trump is the focus. They just, I don't know. I mean, they just flip that switch and turn into. They lose it. uh, They do. (laughs) They do. And I love it. (laughs) Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.